Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are just tuning in, the Ballyhoo is here in the wintry north with a major exclusive. At the risk of revealing more than would be desired, we are here with the crew of Polar Expedition 6 and the Army personnel who arrived on site only yesterday for the revelation of something found in the ice. It has been chaos here as it has freed itself from its icy tomb and begun to terrorize the base. The stress is high, folks. I'm not going to lie. And Wait a minute. Oh, hold on. Captain Hendry is leading his men down the hall here. They're all gathering up at a door. Let's go in for a closer look. Don't be silly. That'll cost you drinks, guy. I'm a beer. Ready, Bob? No, but go ahead and open it. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many terrifying sights await inside the picture palace of this past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the shocking things inside. And speaking of things to talk about, we have quite a thing to talk about. In fact, it is a thing that has sparked the imagination and dread of every horror fan and sci-fi aficionado since a short story called Who Goes There was turned into a blood-curdling tale of terror amidst the harsh Arctic snow that would compel those after it to say, oh yeah? Well, I can get make it scarier. I mean, I can do better than that. Jesus Christ. Yet, no matter what iteration has succeeded it, nothing can quite capture the same Red Scare vibes intertwined with male camaraderie and the fear of the scientific unknown quite like tonight's presentation. So get your seats and be thrilled by that Winchester Pictures opening before the title emerges amidst the dark light to reveal 1951's The Thing from Another World. See the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? Baffling questions, astounding questions. 
that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us as one pole from the other. If we can only communicate with it. See? What happened, Doctor? In the greenhouse I was working, I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air and I heard Olsen scream. Come here. Get in the corner. Now hold this in front of you. Stay by the light switch. 1.9. Needles hit the top. that you've seen the show we will get to the talk of the day in 1951 howard hawks's winchester's pictures collaboration with rko had a two-picture deal to produce under hawks's unique vision the thing from another world would prove prove to be the one that captured the zeitgeist of pop culture for its themes of alien takeover the dread of what we do not understand and the isolation that consumes those trapped in an arctic base with middle, little means of reaching the outside world beyond a faulty radio yet the film happens <laughs> <laughs> Yet the film carries an unanswered question amidst the affirmed facts. The Ballyhoo, wishing to ascribe authorship, finds its rather puzzling picture unfolded for us. Is it the work of first-time director Christian Nyby or Howard Hawks at the helm, giving his longtime editor the credit for DGA membership? Who is responsible for an influential piece of sci-fi and horror that, while flawed in execution, has gone on to inspire generations of filmmakers in the horror realm? The Ballyhoo shall look all over the data and analyze it for ourselves, but we cannot do it alone. Trapped with us in this frozen hell are two podcasters <laughs> whose optimism can be heard each week on Poptimistic, but Will their poptimism withstand the dread of historical context, drastically changed storylines, and the imminent threat about the Cold War? Well, only one way to find out. Please welcome back to the show Anthony Kuba and Brent Ballard. That was amazing. That was that, I, every time we're on, the intros are getting better and better. I, I love the MST3K in the middle of it. I need more guests to start doing that. <laughs> I had more, but I didn't want to be that guy. I, I, uh, it's it's hard because I like want to give you your your time to do it, I but know. it's like I want to say something too because there's you're just so good at it. It's like I have to interact with this. <laughs> yeah. Which one of you? It. Which one of you is Tom Servo, and which one of you is Crow? <laughs> Oh, man. That's a really good question. I say that you're the Tom Servo because you're funnier. Oh, well, that's nice. No, you're kind of goofier. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I, th- I think Crow actually is you, and Tom Servo is a lot more lo- logical, right? If you, I remember right. A little oh, bit yeah. more. He's a little bit yeah. more logical and a little He's bit a little more, more mechanical. And a little more snarky. Yeah. <laughs> He's right. got mm. I'll, I'll take Servo if you mm. want to take Crow. I'll take Crow. <laughs> I, Hell yeah. I, I do believe that Brent would uh, try to dig a hole to escape from a spaceship. <laughs> Like oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, actually, you know, I would use thermite bombs if I was going to do anything. You I would, would use, use thermite, bombs. thermite bombs. That's I so... would use thermite bombs for everything. That's yeah, so building amazing. A, building an in-ground pool. <laughs> thermite <laughs> melting, uh, melting the ice cubes in my freezer a little quicker than Mar- uh, Martha. <laughs> Martha, back up. You'll be able to use your pool toys very soon. <laughs> Daddy's just going to blow up the neighborhood. It's fine. 
<laughs> Daddy, I don't feel so good. And why are these splotches appearing on my skin all of a sudden? <laughs> <laughs> I love that that was the captain's solution to everything in this. And, and then like, he was like, let's use thermite bombs to melt the ice. <laughs> and then later on, what, like they get a letter from the general or whatever. And he's like, well, it looks like he said to use those thermite bombs. <laughs> like, well, it okay. went so well the first time. It's almost let's as if I know that I know the captain is just going to approve of this. He's, he's, <laughs> he's tied in financially to the thermite corporation. <laughs> the scientist is like, I got us a big turkey. Get the thermite bombs. Carrington's just like, Carrington's just like, how do you know that this is going to be approved by your general? And just like, he's the fucking CEO of Thermite Incorporated. <laughs> Acme Thermite. Acme. Th oh my God, Wiley. No wonder Wiley Coyote uh, was able to uh, explode things with such glory in the desert. He had thermite on him. Thermite. My yeah. He was. Yeah. Gentlemen, welcome back. It's been a minute. Uh, the the uh, the the last man on earth episode had quite a reception to the point where you guys got retweeted by Lloyd Kaufman, which that was <laughs> that was a fucking dream come true. <laughs> that that was so incredible. So uh, I will uh, give a little inside info on this. So prior to that retweet, Zach Bynes from Talking Troma had initially said like you should reach out to Lloyd to talk about Golden Age Hollywood, and I was very. Yes. I was very hesitant, and I was like, eh, I don't know. And then he retweeted that, and I was just like, well, I've got an opening at the very least, even if he doesn't yes. remember retweeting it. And so we did it, and then that's what resulted in that uh, that Talk and Troma crossover episode we released not too long ago with Lloyd on talking about Golden Age Hollywood. Which, Before I took my shelf down for the move, I had a uh, um, make your own movie, damn it, on my uh, by Lloyd Kaufman on, uh, <laughs> or make your own damn movie. Uh, yeah which is um, an awesome Bible to like making your movie on $5. Like just yeah. go do whatever the fuck needs to happen. Just put together cardboard props or whatever, you know? Yep. Just, just slap. splash your actors in pig's blood and yep. just throw them in front of the <laughs> which is Which is easily accessible from all the refineries and the, uh, and the meat industry that you've got around you in LA. Right. Um, yes, of course. Uh, it's funny because the, the book that has a lot of his Golden Age Hollywood references see, uh, is... Um, everything to learn about filmmaking I learned from the Toxic Avenger and that's where he talks a lot about that and that's Excellent. where Zach got the info that then he relayed to me because I'm a trauma I'm a trauma appreciator but I haven't been like a, a mega fan until ingratiating myself with Zach and getting to know him as a friend and appreciating what comes out of the company uh, in a in a light beyond just Lloyd's work because there's a lot of right. films that they pick up like Jenna Fisher's first movie Lolly Loves on there and you've got these uh, uh, these unique films that are being made right now by the underground uh, cult movement that are fascinating to examine just because they're they're putting themes in there that I just wasn't expecting out of any film period. So and it's primarily because we live in a society that's a little bit more dominated towards the main film culture, the the blockbuster culture. So. And they can cross over too. Like for mm -hmm. a, a really good example is James Gunn came out of the trauma. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thing. Tromeo and, and Juliet. Um, he worked on the book that inspired Terra Firmer. Um, and mm -hmm. the suicide squad is, is a fucking trauma. Is a fucking trauma. Yeah, movie. It really is. To it, be honest. Uh, yeah. It's so it's a high budget trauma movie. I loved it though. I loved it. Yeah, so it was much. great. But the the moment that I saw Jai Courtney explode in the Suicide Squad, I was like, "Oh, he, he's not messing around with this no. iteration. No, he's he's definitely <laughs> revamping this whole concept because 
that cast was so stacked and i'm just i didn't it's, even oh. i didn't even think about because it's the suicide squad i'm just like oh yeah like half of these people are gonna die within the first five minutes aren't they <laughs> it's, it's so good it's so fun mm-hmm I, I loved it. And I love Sylvester Stallone as, as King Shark. Oh, and as, me too. They recorded a different actor. Uh, Steve, entirely. A, Steve Agee, right? Steve. I, I think it was either Steve Agee or they, he also said that they recorded another A-list actor and it wasn't working. And then somehow he got around to Sly Sloan and, and got him to do it. And then he was like, yeah, this is it. Yeah, I'll Interesting. Do it, James. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to just kill time before I can make another Rocky movie because I apparently yeah. don't know when to stop. Well, he's like, he's like, I made it into Guardians of the Galaxy. Time to get into that DC money a little bit yeah. and oh, yeah. expand. I'm going to dominate do the it Bradley all. Bradley Cooper thing where you just show up for a few days and get paid a mm-hmm. million dollars. Yeah. Yep. And let Sean Gunn do the rest of the yep. work. Yeah, exactly. or, 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 you know, like Vin Diesel, roll over, say to your iPhone four times, I am Groot a little bit differently <laughs> and then cash in for the rest of your life. All right, James, and I'm done. And keep making weird fantasy Dungeons and Dragon movies that I watch and am the only person that enjoys and thank you vin diesel i love you wait a minute don't forget his rap career or his song 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 singing career oh yeah i forgot about that song which which apparently the rock is now trying to top with his collaboration with tech nine so oh yeah it's it's almost like anytime the rock reads something regarding vin diesel he's just like i've i've i I gotta do it i have to top him his arrogance has to stop Well, they like For, uh, they hate each other, right? Oh, like yeah. In in the the fast films, they, they like said that be they around each other. The gauntlet, but they were really cats and dogs. It's uh, nuts. Yeah. For it, I, a for a podcast about Hollywood, Golden Age Hollywood, this is cutting edge I, uh, pop culture. Oh yeah, <laughs> we've we've got to give you guys a little bit of that because, as we all know, the Poptimistic podcast has been ever growing and ever expanding. Yeah. You guys are hitting that yes. one year mark there, and you guys yeah. got a sponsor. You guys are killing it, we my did. friends. Killing we're, it. Thank you, We're sir. huge, you know? We might uh, add another podcast to the stable that only houses one currently. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. We're, but... we're expanding the Poptimistic umbrella, you know? Yeah. We're reaching out a little bit more. We're trying things we haven't tried before. We've got a rebrand coming. Uh, we've got a little... Uh, well, you know, we've got like a, a mascot coming. We've got some giveaways we're going to be doing. A mascot? A... Is it Poppy yeah. the Pop King? <laughs> I mean, you're kind of close. Oh shit! And by kind of, you mean you kind of <laughs> like pretty just, spot on. Pretty yeah, spot on. Pretty, <laughs> pretty much exactly. What it is. Uh, we also have a surprise for you that I'll I'll let you share with your your people after your people your uh, however <laughs> you, you want to share people? it after <laughs> you after you receive it. So that'll oh, be a fun surprise for you. So. Wonderful. Well, I will say that the, you had the Discord idea, which is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. The idea of yep. connecting. Uh, I do a film club with Secret History of Hollywood, which runs in similar. Uh, in similar vein and so i like the idea of you doing that with like bigger like bigger pop culture pieces i know we've talked about before matrix comes out that we're all gonna sit down and watch those i love those movies we could be here all day talking about that sci-fi but i I, took off about the matrix for days i wanted to say that with this movie the one that we watched that you know we're actually going to talk about at some point today uh i i really I really would like to watch this movie again with you guys because it's oh. like it's an hour and 27 minutes yeah. because first of all, which can I ask you because like this is my second or third movie I've seen that's in this this era. Uh-huh. Um, so as a as a well, I wouldn't say a virgin, but as a prude to these sorts of things, <laughs> uh, is it 
Is it normal for these movies to be shorter because the dialogue is very like quick, like like they talk Mm. on top of each other almost every line? It's like it varies. Um, I think that like I I do think well. So um, something that I came across in researching over the last two years Mm -hmm. is that the reason that a lot of the dialogue initially as sound film begins is stilted and separated is because the sound technology is new. You're trying to make sure that people are clearly hearing this quicker speed comes out of a desire to be more realistic to an actual world environment where people are Mm. talking uh, okay. not necessarily in like eloquent Shakespearean manner or right. uh, formal theater. And I think that the big, like, it's funny, like I, I, I use the Marx brothers as an example, whenever I can, you do notice a shift in comedy where comedy prior to the Marx brothers talking is, is like spread out and whatnot, but they're the first to talk normally go at a high speed and really not right. care about that delivery. But you also have gangster movies breaking that mold as well. Yeah. The ru- the short runtime too. Also, there are several reasons for that, whether it's cut footage or mm-hmm. based on the script. A big one though, is, is that a lot of films between the late thirties and the early fifties, Um, And even a little bit beyond that, they're cut down because there was financial disparity during the golden age of Hollywood in spite of the whole theory of the depression being this bastion of wealth for the entertainment industry. (laughs) And a lot of films were cut down to a a, a decent length to allow for double bills. So the more you can pack in, we have the same theory today where like the shorter the movie is, the more show times you get out of it, which is why when an Avengers movie comes out, everybody's just like, ah, Jesus, we we need more screens. (laughs) Yeah. So every theater has 24 screens and they're open 10 hours more than they used to be yeah uh well not, not i don't know how it is and um well i mean get brent you and i are oh, in I'm, Colorado. I'm yeah. texas was that way texas yeah, yeah. Uh, and they have but they also have drive-thrus more way more drive-thrus in texas yeah colorado though, drive-thrus you, whatever they're called you, right. where you were at in colorado you've got a really nice drive in we've also got the 88 one down here um nearer yeah. denver but like the hours have shortened now because of COVID and they're finally starting to get back nine o'clock and 10 o'clock shows. But nice. There's that period (laughs) after COVID where like, it's like seven o'clock and we're done. I'm like, ah, Jesus feels weird. There there was a theater next to us in Texas. That was like full capacity the entire time through COVID. It was like, Oh good. Everyone's going to die there. Everyone's just going to die. It's fine. Yeah. Thankfully there has been no links to it. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that we can. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Maybe. I know. We have to say the thing and pop Mm -hmm. as much as we can. Mm -hmm. That's part of the Mm -hmm. branding contract that you guys shoved in my digital throat. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You, you you tied me up to a virtual chair and said, fucking sorry. (laughs) (laughs) um well speaking of the thing we are here Mm. to talk about the thing from another world which um excellent transitions yes i i I know yeah hey guys that's why they call me the greatest podcaster ever (laughs) wow i remember i saw yeah i saw a placard that said that somewhere i can't remember it was in the garbage anyway (laughs) (laughs) um so uh you guys put this on the list initially when we were figuring out, well, what can we do with him? But we chose the yeah. last man on earth because who doesn't want to talk about Vincent Price and also the the vibes are strong. But like this was a little lower on the list. And uh, and I, I want to ask you guys, out of priority sake, this film being on here is one of the most interesting to talk about in the respect that we are talking about an instance where Golden Age Hollywood doesn't really get it right. <laughs> 
Uh, by comparison yeah. to <laughs> kind of the second, the, for some reason we keep choosing these movies that uh, kind of don't hit the mark, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that The Last Man on Earth, based on our discussion with it, it hits the the source material better than yes. things. Oh, that... I was going to talk about that. Yeah. So I didn't mm-hmm. read the I didn't read the short story. Mm-hmm. Um, Who goes I, there? Yeah. I actually have it, but I, I didn't know I, there was a I, short story. Yeah, I meant to do. I meant to read that like I did with um, the last one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, what I did, I had to go and do the online Wikipedia and just like skim through the notes. And I found, I was like, oh shit, this movie does the exact opposite of Last Man on Earth, where Last Man on Earth was almost to a fault, uh, sticking to the source material, um, and then even through parts that shouldn't have been like actually filmed, mm-hmm. and then. This one goes out of its way to be different and not capture themes in the book. Um, uh, so it was kind of a weird duality between the two that we've chosen so far. Right. And I, you know, I am I have been racking my brain the last two weeks trying to remember, have I read the short story? Because I read a slew of stuff in high school. And I will be yeah. frank that my memories of the thing have virtually nothing to do with the source material or even this movie. It really has to do with John Carpenter's. The Absolutely. Thing. I was going to say, uh, Brent and I kind of agreed like um, a lot of what we're going to talk about is uh, going to be that movie. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we, we, we we'll try to limit it. Oh, but... no, it's it's totally fine. I mean, like I've got I, I've I'll tell you that like. I felt it necessary, even though I'm having trouble remembering jack shit about the the short story, that yeah. talking about John W. Campbell was essential to this conversation, the author of mm. that short story. Oh, um, sure. And not the least of which is because if this show is about context, oh, fucking boy. Um, <laughs> so uh, he began writing science fiction at the age of 18 when it, while attending MIT to quick success. Between 1930 and 31, he has six, six short stories, a novel, and a letter published by Amazing Stories. He then goes on to become the editor of Astounding Science Fiction, later referred to as Analog Science Fiction and Fact, which is a mouthful. Um, (laughs) Starting in 1937, he does this until his death. Once he became an editor, he stopped writing short stories. This is among those like the like among the last tier of short stories that he writes is who goes there. Um, Now, in the interest of being upfront, John W. Campbell influenced a lot of sci-fi writers. He also, um, the people that he influenced would break away from him because he shared very, very weird and wrong views oh. <laughs> on life. So um, this this was a d- nice rabbit hole that we're not gonna we're not gonna dwell on it a bunch because he's Does not. Does it the have re- context in this? Because I, you know, what's funny is I didn't have any. I, I didn't link the idea of a sh- uh, shape shifting. Um, alien that impersonates people uh to be like a com anti like red sentiment until now and then i'm like fuck that's actually really good well yeah. it, it it would lend credence if howard hawks is getting his hands on the material uh to adapt it at this time in the 50s but campbell was as described by isaac asimov in 1973 Ooh. 
Campbell championed far out ideas. He painted yeah, very many. I just looked up the Wikipedia. This is really bad. He painted very many of the men he had trained, including me, in doing so. But it felt, but felt it was his duty to stir up the minds of his readers and force curiosity right out to the borderlines. He began a series of editorials in which he championed a social point of view that could be described as far right. He expressed sympathy for George Wallace and the 1968 national election, for instance. There was a bitter opposition to this from many, including me. I could hardly ever read a Campbell editorial and keep my temper. This is a gentleman who promoted segregation in a yep. um, oh my god in an editorial <laughs> for his own magazine. He uh, he published an essay called Segregation, and it was supported uh, in in support of segregated schools, stating that the Negro race failed to produce uh, super high geniuses. Oh no! And he oh my god, it's Ben Shapiro. <laughs> it's if you if you took Ben Shapiro and gave him some kind of creativity, some kind of actual brain. <laughs> that could conjure up stories, <laughs> it turns into John W. Campbell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, re- wow. he rejected Samuel R. Delaney's novel, Nova, a month before its publishing. A note in a phone call was left to his agent stating that Campbell felt the readership would not be able to relate to a black main character. <laughs> <sighs> now, you, uh, now, before we move uh, away from him, because again, he... he it's just god damn it we could go on that tangent forever but he also <laughs> believed in pseudoscience he yeah, began sure believing did. in joseph ryan's work and theory surrounding the phenomenon on esp and would publish tales encouraged under his tenure as editor to include elements of telepathy etc in the realm of pseudoscience so he's a racist x-men that's what he and, that jo- <laughs> and by the way um i didn't know this but also tobacco has no link to lung cancer by no the way. not at all none whatsoever yeah. no not well, that's a, a revelation he, to he, me from he, this guy he said that uh the connection was esoteric and that was barely determinable possible correlation between cigarette smoking and cancer he also supported crank medicine so he's also like uh the infowars fuck and <laughs> alex jones oh yeah. my god gross oh god yeah no so he's just promoting like fucking stupid bone pills on fucking- this guy's like a mix of all of the worst kinds of people oh yeah now here's where it gets even more crazy. But creative yeah i mean <laughs> settle up because he worked with one of the most creative people on the planet adolf hitler no <laughs> no oh. worked with l ron hubbard uh, oh, on the principles he, he worked on the principles that would eventually form dianetics and that's when, amazing and i wrote this in my notes my way and not the way uh, the research told me when Hubbard's nonsense could not find publishing, Campbell did so in astounding, stating that it is, I assure you, in full and absolute sincerity, one of the most important articles ever published. Oh, no. Holy guacamole! And now Hubbard, Hubbard and Campbell parted ways um, uh, on their newfound nonsense religion in 1952. Um, yeah, Campbell is a crazy guy. However, who goes there has influenced a ton of people. And thankfully, who goes there does not really... This is the difference between this and like a Gone with the Wind. The source material is not dictating the p- personal views of the author 
uh, in a way mm. that has been populous. Uh, I was going to say, it hasn't it, been used for evil in a way. Like, it hasn't been used as a segregation or an anti-communist meme or, like... Exactly. Yeah, yeah so. it's, you know, like, I mean, and let's be clear, John W. Campbell and Margaret Mitchell, both terrible people. <laughs> Absolutely terrible people. Um, but one source material is adaptable into something palatable, and the other one is um, a trash melodrama novel. And... Um, <laughs> The, but this this story was originally uh, a longer version of it was titled Frozen Hell. Manuscripts Ooh. were discovered three years ago to part be, that who goes there was actually part of a larger no novel, and these manuscripts were discovered um, as part of material that was sent to Harvard University by Campbell. Uh, the Frozen Hell materials have been published since then, and Blumhouse has picked up an option to produce that as its own thing movie. Um, but it really? it initially gets published as a 12-chapter novella in Adventures in Time and Space and the Antarcos Cycle, Horror and Wonder at the Ends of the Earth, under the title The Thing from Another World. Um, so it had two different published titles <laughs> at certain various points. There was a 14-chapter version that was published in The Best of John W. Campbell and the Who Goes There collection, which is a series of short stories. It has been voted... Uh, by the Science Fiction Writers of America is one of the most influential, important, and memorable science fiction pieces ever written. And I agree. It, it wow. is extremely yeah. influential. The themes in the, in the story, which pertain to the idea of an alien escaping its confines and taking the form of people around it and creating the ultimate question of who can you trust? Yeah, it's iconic. Right? Among yeah. us. Yeah. And then <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, and then uh, Howard Hawks looked at that and said, fuck that shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously. He the so the 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 context coming into this is that um, Howard Hawks, who is a bigger topic than this show can allow for and also oh. since there's controversy over the directorship we we're went not... over howard hawks a little bit in the last oh, one i believe we, I think... we, we we talked about him briefly but howard yeah. hawks and he's also been discussed as part of uh the lloyd kaufman episode that was alluded to earlier but he will get his own episode when we do one oh. of his uh 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 uh, uh action like confirmed directorial works um cool. but at this time he was working with rko and RKO at this time was being run by none other than Howard Hughes, uh, oh, noted yes. noted uh, drill bit uh, inheritee <laughs> and uh, aviator and uh, gentleman that Leonardo DiCaprio played. Um, mm -hmm. The way of the future, the way of the future. And um, I love that movie. Now he produced, um, he had formed Winchester Pictures, um, uh, a his own production company to produce films under his banner without interference of a high nature by whoever was handling distribution. Winchester Pictures would only produce two films: this film today and the the confirmed Hawks directorial outing, The Big Sky. Um, and RKO at this time is fumbling around. RKO doesn't exist anymore for reasons. They never ever found a way to financially make themselves viable on a consistent mm -hmm. basis. When Hughes was running the studio, the mishandling of it was due to the insistence of expensive productions that would fail to recoup their budget. So it's like only blockbusters that just all tank. And the the bright side of this is that this tenure does produce movies like Robert Wise's The Setup and Ida Lupino's uh, directorial work, one of the first female directors out there that has a big name. 
because there were oh, female cool. directors early on in Hollywood's history before men were like, oh, you can make money off of this? Fine, get out of here. That's right. Um, <laughs> and um, The Hitchhiker, one of Lupina's films, is like one of the big uh, pieces that comes out of there. Mm. Um, now, the uh, in terms of this film becoming a reality, Hawks and his partner at Winchester Pictures, Edward Lasker, made the deal with RKO to produce these two films, The Big Sky and The Thing from Another World. They, they assigned the script to Charlie Lederer, the writer of Kiss of Death and uh, eventually Gen Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Uh, and Hawks and Lederer were working to simplify Campbell's story through half a dozen rewrites in a way that drastically shifted from the novella. So instead of yep. an alien that takes the form of whatever it uh, latches onto, it's now a singular creature slash vegetable thing that uh, uh 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 is uh sucking on people's blood so over the course spoilers. of spoilers <laughs> i thought we were i thought we were gonna watch the movie oh here. no don't <laughs> they, they watched the trailer already they know what's going on uh, it's now. a straight up fucking cabbage patch kid you <laughs> yeah, know it's, like it's a cabbage patch adult i think shows they even, up in this movie if i remember right which i probably don't i think they start talking about how it's a vegetable before they show the like baby plants yeah, well, <laughs> in the scene with the hand. In the scene with the hand, he's just like, it's like a super carrot. <laughs> oh, that's right. Well, and I was and like, that's, what? That's the thing. Is then, like, I think one of them just wrote it down at one point and was like, yeah. this vegetable thing is good. Because then like, later, one of them is like, yeah, so what do you do to vegetables? Yeah, that's what I was going <laughs> to yeah. boil them. <laughs> well, and it's, uh, my, so my favorite part about this movie is that I think it's probably the most and least feminist movie of all time. Yeah. <laughs> You have this one. Okay, so it's a there's, it's a group there's of, two there's two women that's in there. True. You're right. There's two women that I am now morphing into one because well, they they're yeah, the exact well, same. Well, yeah, one of them gets no lines. So exactly. And oh, then the I men. Realize, yeah. The men. If you look at the cast of men, it's all uh, aggressive, straightforward scientist man. Aggressive, mm. straightforward army man. Aggressive, straightforward. Uh, reporter man yeah. woman that is there because she can read clearly out loud and then at that point where they're like well what do you do to a vegetable she's like yeah, she's the one she's, she comes over and she's like well i cook and clean obviously yeah. so you put it in an oven or you boil <laughs> it and then they're like well there you go does she get credit no 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 they the man all, takes they, the idea yeah. no yeah, they're like that's that they, all, they, they all go over to a board and they're like yeah that's she said boil, right? Did she say boil? Yeah, put it up on the board. She, put my name next to it. Uh, it that that you, information is boil things. <laughs> that information is now property of the military, gentlemen, just like Scotty's <laughs> story. <laughs> um it's funny <laughs> that you say this uh, because similar to Hitchcock, Hawks has a solid reputation with the way his female characters come about in his films. Mm. Um, whether produced or directed. And we'll get to the controversy later. But um uh the Hawks heroine was proven as a successful tool with people like Lauren Bacall and Ella Raines as characters that could stand toe to toe with the men. So it's imperfect, mm -hmm. but it does um, it, it does it, it does break a standard that other films have of what a woman's place is supposed to be. Again, yep. it's imperfect. And Hawks is a very flawed human being. Uh, with that, with that being said, the actress that plays the lead female mm -hmm. Margaret uh, Sheridan yeah thank you she is my favorite person in this movie yeah she was <laughs> because she's yeah. the only one that puts any kind of dramatic pause into yes. her lines <laughs> and so like when uh when the doctor or when the scientist guy goes over his data and stuff he's like 
I have found this and this, and this is what I found, and you're an idiot. And then... <laughs> and somebody else she, is already when, interrupting and, with a retort. <laughs> yeah, and they're talking over each other before anyone even finishes anything. But her, they have... There's one part where he they have her read the data that he had. Yeah. And she reads it, and like she actually pauses at points where it's like, this she's reading it like it caught her off guard and she has lost her breath to say it and it's like you're the only person to put a performance in this all these other dudes just wanted to bang you the only it feels like it feels like a play she's yeah she's everybody so is, yeah she's the she's the best she's the only one acting for film everybody else is in a play yeah mm -hmm. especially scotty who does the most movement and blocking <laughs> imaginable um uh, douglas spencer you also <laughs> I would argue that the only other one that's actually acting towards the camera, you you could make an argument for Robert Cornthwaite, uh, who plays Doctor Carrington, where he's oh, yeah. he's very much uh, he has actual dramatic stakes. Um, yes, and also um, the thing that we're talking about with this cast, you might be wondering, like, why haven't I heard of any of these people? It's because <laughs> Hawks wanted to have authenticity to the picture by not having big names attached. Now, also at this time, which might uh, st uh, strike a blow for Hawks's uh, aggrandizing is that RKO's budget would probably not allow for an, a star. <laughs> so, because um, like they, they probably couldn't afford what they used to be able to with a with a Hepburn or an Astaire and Rogers or an Orson Welles. Uh, well, it was a financial decision uh, masked as a creative one. Yeah, uh -huh. and I take that yeah. back. They could afford Wells. Wells decided to... <laughs> <laughs> well took him to the cleaners in a good way and RKO just decided to boot him on his ass. That's a whole other discussion. Um, but uh, the, the honestly, the biggest star that people have heard of uh, from this film is James Arness, who plays mm -hmm. the titular thing because he was Marshall Matt Dillon uh, for 20 years on Gunsmoke. Yep. Yep. Um, this is a film that he would also pretty much refuse to talk about later in life, and he felt embarrassed <laughs> by it. Um, there is a report. Um, American Society of Cinematographers has an amazing article on the production of this film. They reported that Arnes was under contract to RKO under Lasker, one of the co-founders of Winchester. He received $750 a week, handed a grand in petty cash vouchers in advance, and a salary extension clause of eight days beyond the completion date as an inducement not to, inducement not to take other jobs before starting dates of November 18th for production. Um, and he had stunt work um experience in the past but again like it, it when you watch the film there are ways that this film is shot where i'm like yeah i probably wouldn't want to talk about my work on this either because i could see how it is embarrassing to you i don't think you should be embarrassed but i understand your position on it yeah um, it wasn't yeah. it was a it, it's a position that or a role that didn't do much. Mm -hmm. They added a bunch of mm, in post. Yeah. Your face is covered by a mask and all you are is a tall man stumbling through some scenes. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Yep. Now, before we get into the plot of the film, there are a couple of things to go over. Number one, the story changes this. Uh, is the story has changed from an unidentified base in the South Pole to a specifically labeled base for the U.S. Air Force working in conjunction with a scientific team in the North Pole. Um, mm -hmm. This is a testament, I think, to the desire coming out of the war to be more technically accurate with military jargon um, mm. and that camaraderie that you spoke of with the men and whatnot, that is a Hoxian trait. And so yeah. I think he's, there's a, there's a de desire to incorporate the 
the camaraderie that Hawks is known for with uh, scientifically like or like like actualized uh, jargon. And yeah. this film was trying to even go further into uh, its uh, military association because they wanted to film in Fairbanks and Nome, Alaska, per permission from the government. However, on September 14, 1950, the Pentagon forwarded this memo. The script of Winchester Pictures' propo proposed production of The Thing has been reviewed, and it is regretted that we will not be able to extend cooperation as the story revolves around flying saucers and their possible contents. The Air Force has maintained the position for some time that there are no such objects as oh, flying saucers shit. and does not wish to be identified with any project that could be interpreted as perpetuating the myth of the flying saucer. Also, oh! also the Air Force seriously objects to any mention of Air Force personnel and equipment and or pictorial sequences representing Air Force personnel or equipment being included in the film. Providing your company plans to proceed on oh, the production shit. without Air Force cooperation, we request every consideration be, give, be given to the Air Force objection in the interest of maintaining goodwill and relations. The Air Force has dispatched a wire to Commander-in-Chief Alaska <sighs> Theater stating their objections. Sincerely, Donald E. Barrick, Barrick Chief Motion Picture Secretary of the pictorial branch holy what a ch alpha response <coughs> oh the, the, my the god the, the, i mean scully the truth is out there they don't want <laughs> yeah. us to know about the thing from another world bro i was gonna say like is the moon even real at this point <laughs> like, <laughs> wow I, it's a piece of cheese grommet <laughs> yes thank you yeah. now there was a follow-up from the Pentagon that said that they would cooperate with the film if the film was all a dream. Oh, oh my God. Oh. And, and Hawks and Nyby in the studio were just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> we're not interested in that movie. No, thank you. Tell you what, while we're, while we're negotiating with you, I'm going to send, send out Archie Stout, <laughs> um, uh, to go over there and shoot background plates in Alaska without Air Force approval for a week. <laughs> Perfect. Yep. Meanwhile, I'm going to have my buddy uh, DP Harold Wellman shooting in the Iverson Ranch full photographing the explosions. So, <laughs> God damn it. Like, Hawks was just like, I'm not taking this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck these guys. <laughs> um, now, the, uh, the, the whole production of this film has an extensive amount of heavy attachment to special effects and uh, uh, massive scale on a low budget. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about a couple of those because there is one near the end of the movie that was very unsafe from what I can tell. Yeah, um, the, the, we, we will get to that. Yeah, we'll get to it. I will say, though, that the makeup, in terms of this makeup, there was a uh, the initial budget was a $10,000 experimental makeup for the thing uh, that had more than doubled by the time Hawks okayed the least complex design he had uh, that Lee Greenway had submitted. Um, wow. It was designed in mortician's wax and developed as a foam rubber prosthetic, not unlike... Uh, uh, not unlike what the Bud Westmore regime would be doing, uh, mm. and the dome. For all intents and purposes, they should have just recycled the Frankenstein mask from like any of the <laughs> movies. <laughs> given given the close up photos, I agree. Like it's almost like you should have just gone. You should have just snuck over to Universal and knocked on yeah. Bud Westmore's door and be like. Look, we're fucked. Can you just give you fifteen dollars? Yeah, just... can you give me the one of your fucking? I know you're making these 
on in a factory mentality because you're not doing it like Jack Pierce. Just give me a fucking mask. Give me eight, give me five, and I'll give you a hundred dollars. Ooh, yeah, big money in the fifties. Um, the uh, now uh, the there were uh, devices. Uh, uh, the the do the the whole hairless skull was embellished with plastic veins uh, through color watered flowed. Um, uh, flowing through as Arnest breathes, so there's like movement in them, but you don't really see it. I was um, gonna say all of that for nothing because they just shroud him anyways. Exactly. Um, yeah. He had special su- shoes and a built-up skull, making Arnest stand over seven feet tall. Um, the uh, the whole uh, uh, the voice um, is described by Cam- <laughs> Campbell as a savage mewing scream. So they achieved that sound, which I would argue is one of the positive traits of Arness's yeah. monster. Yeah. Is yeah. it's in, it's achieved by slowing down and distorting tracks of cat cries. So, Ooh. so basically, Howard Hawks would have gone over to your house, Anthony, and said, "Give me yeah. some of your fucking cats." Yeah. <laughs> a, a typical night at Anthony's house. <laughs> Give me some of those fucking cats. <laughs> 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 I just imagine now Anthony wanting to remake the thing, going up to the cat, going like, "Come on, oh cat. my god, meow, <laughs> fuck a meow." <laughs> That's a great idea. Oh we my. should do this. We can we can sell sound effects to Blumhouse, mm-hmm. <laughs> make some money. You're welcome. Um, now the and the dormitory scene with the Blaze set was shot MOS at the RKO Stage Seven. We will talk about that a little bit later because it does come into the plot. Um, and as as Anthony alluded to, it's very unsafe. But <laughs> um, why don't we go ahead and jump into the plot? Yeah. Of a thing from another world. First of all, we are given a military march in the form of the uh, uh, in the form of the Winchester Pictures logo, and then we get the title card of the thing, which is one of the few things that John Carpenter carried over into his. I want to say that I yep. actually, weirdly enough, I went back and I watched the John Carpenter one and I actually like this title card specifically a little more. I really? Think it's, yeah. The, the John Carpenter one um, is great, but it just, it feels aged. This one just feels primal to me. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed it. Just the title yeah. card alone. And specifically because also they had, um, in the John Carpenter one, it's over a planet in the like, and it was like had imagery behind it. This is just like black screen, yeah, mm-hmm, like yeah. feel, like bam, right in your face. It, it was very cool. I, you know, I agree. Now, like my uh, knowing, uh, I would love to know more about how they created that title sequence for this movie. I yeah, love it that looks it looks more practical in I, a way. I know, which is funny because the documentary for the '82 thing clearly shows how practical that opening credit sequence right. is. Right. Um, the score, too, by Dimitri Tiomkin, legendary D- Dimitri Tiomkin, um, I think really kicks you in super well. Like, it's... And he incorporates theremin into this uh, score throughout the production. Like, it is fantastic. <clears throat> and we don't see cast listing up front mm-hmm. because we're trying to keep that mystery alive. Um, yep. But we'll put John Campbell's racist name on the screen. <laughs> 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 He deserves credit. Um, now we are <laughs> we arrived in Anchorage, uh, Alaska, uh, and it is uh, it is a air base that an officers club that looks like a fucking ski lodge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. super super uh, gauche, like fucking like you'd want a vacation there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it looked seriously, kinda, it looked 
cozy. Um, one thing I want to say is I the sets also like John Carpenter actually seemed to take a lot of the sets because it felt very much the same. Yeah, it took a lot of inspiration um, mm. up to including posters on the wall. Yep. I noticed mm -hmm. and the bookshelf, which is like the books were like all over the place. It yeah, was, it was some very specific details that he took from it. Yeah. The only thing that I comment on the set design on this movie is that it is a little bit more cleaner looking than what Carpenter and his team bring into the remake because it's I love the, the, the lived in feel. Yeah, of the remake. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now there's, yeah. and there's nothing like I would say the most lived in that this film feels from that perspective is either in the greenhouse or in the uh, tunnel ways that lead to the different oh, so rooms. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Those Which, are... by the way, the tunnelways too. He took a lot of that. Mm -hmm. There's the barrels and the crates and all the same stuff, which was super cool. It just had such a, the same feeling, so I had a lot of nostalgia for the. It was very fun. I don't really like the original, like like in terms of a story, but I really sure. like the look. So if we're gonna do this, we're gonna do it fucking right. Now, Kurt, get on <laughs> over, get over the lap barrel over there because you need to be in that exact position, mm -hmm. like the person who would have been McCready was. <laughs> 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 did gonna... anyone die sorry i just had a little non sequitur did anyone die i don't think anybody died in this one yeah oh in a it, dog it, a dog got its blood sucked out of it a, do a dog got yeah. its blood sucked and out then, of it and the two like the, the two dudes the two two the two dudes in the greenhouse which is yeah. funny because oh that's right that uh that scene uh, there was a scene that initially showed those two getting killed um, but they, it was cut, but it, it 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 included the thing not only killing the dog, but then also killing the two scientists and injuring Franz, who then comes out later and goes like, "It's horrible. They were hung up by the by the yes. feet." And, and see, that's what I was wondering because I I I forgot nobody dies on screen. Mm -hmm. So that's what I just I do remember him coming out and being like, "Oh my god, I got slashed yeah. just now." But it's on the other side of the door. Nobody panic. It's fine. Exactly. <laughs> and and there's uh the way they the way Franz describes how the thing kills people, it's almost like the thing took a page out of uh, Khan Noonien Singh's book and Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan because he, <laughs> he he actually I wouldn't be surprised if Nicholas Myers homages. The thing oh. directly in that scene Ooh. where they go back onto um, the science ship and they see people falling out of cabinets, and then mm. McCoy turns back and sees that those two other scientists crew members have been hung up, but oh, upside yeah. down because Khan killed them because he wants revenge. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm going to go on hurting you, Captain. He can be talked about. He was in Golden Age Hollywood before there was ever a a, a five year mission by the USS Enterprise. Um, but yes, that's, <laughs> that scene as well as the scene where um, it's explained how the oil pipeline that provides the heat gets cut off. Initially, it's described as like he was hurling a guard into the oil pipeline, and as a yeah. side effect, the heat goes down. The movie now indicates that he's smart enough to deliberately shut off right. the heat. Yep. I the thing about this film is that a lot of the violent moments with the thing are just trimmed back, and that's yeah. that's just a detriment to the film because mm, even totally. without showing blood, you could still be violent with this guy. Oh yeah, well, it, it, it's supposed to up the stakes, but the whole time I was like, it doesn't matter if he shows up; he doesn't do much. I mean, it does well, to Scotty. Yeah. It does to Scotty, our intrepid reporter, who won't. It's true. Fucking stop. <laughs> <laughs> he's so annoying. I also like that he thinks he's like tougher than the captain, like the the captain of the 
fucking air force he's like he's like oh you're gonna give me my story and he's like freedom of Bro. speech yeah. it's it's in the constitution i was like wow he won't get a vaccine either will he yeah no. <laughs> my editor told me that the vaccine is full of shit now just like but he did say that the thing is absolutely real <laughs> Now, this is not disrespecting journalists. It's just that no. you have to understand. I, 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 I do tend to understand from a military point of view. If you get information like like the aliens, you need to figure out how to deliver that. It's not that you there's, don't want to deliver it. <laughs> there's also there's also no reporter that's going to be standing in a room full of military people and is going to be like, well, I can't wait to publish this one for everyone to see. <laughs> Because these they, they're going to be like clearly no, you you know that's not happening right like, you, you know we're that- gonna we, you know we're the government we're gonna kill you bury you in that snow and say that that monster did it so in the time that you took to talk uh, and declare that statement we've not only taken your camera but we've taken your wife and child and we will <laughs> uh, we will eliminate them do you, should you not cooperate. <laughs> Your life as you know it is over. Yes. Now, uh, stand in front of this uh, little pen here. Yeah. Um, men in black. Yeah, yeah. That would be great if I'm Will totally Smith just showed up in this yeah, movie. Yeah, drop in in this movie. <laughs> Hell yeah. Then there's a big rap with the thing at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh my god! Now, when we get Scotty entering, though, he's looking for a story because he's just like, I, my, my editor sent me to here to get a story. My que- my biggest question ultimately about Scotty is, it's just like, if you're being sent to Alaska, your editor fucking hates you. He he yeah. wants you to suffer. So I don't think he gives a shit what happens to you. No, to the point your editor where- didn't think there was an actual story here. He thought you were going to get there, not know what you were doing, freeze to death, and then you weren't his problem anymore. Yeah, and when yeah. they get the le- when the when the information does get leaked, he has that image of just like. I could just imagine my editor now slowly sinking in his chair, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, no, your editor is only angry that he didn't think this would happen. He doesn't care what happens to (laughs) you. Yep. (laughs) He sent you there to freeze to death in the frozen hell of Mm -hmm. Antarctica. (laughs) Well, because theoretically you stay alive. He pays you for another 10 years. What? At this time, maybe $13,000 a year. We'll say that's the salary. Way less than that for sure. Probably. Right. But But you know, so if you die, life insurance is what, like four hundred dollars? So he pays that out to your family. He out. I mean, I mean, life like, is meaningless. Who cares? I mean, like he still gets the story regardless. What he can do is J. Jonah Jameson it and like spin it on oh, his own head God, to whatever, yes. whatever, whatever is convenient for him. You know, yes. like I, I mean, to me, like him chasing the story is a wonderful through line throughout the movie. It's just mm-hmm. that the dialogue written for him is he's so overtly annoying this <laughs> this this mo- the worst. this movie has uh, a lot of red scare and a lot of military machismo sewed into the normal hawks revelry and camaraderie where the entire movie is very uh skeptical of science mm-hmm. <laughs> uh mm-hmm. very very anti-journalist <laughs> And and anti uh, environmentalism because the environment yep. and plants are the enemy. I bet, dude. I bet his I bet his wife fucked a liberal, and now he's like, <laughs> you know, and that's just like this has now formed what the enemy is. What Slim? You, you did what? Oh fuck this shit! <laughs> um, it's Ooh, funny it. that like, but it's funny because it does it holds water with the mentality that was coming out of a post war world. 
mm-hmm. there was there was a military grant aggrandizement. We were about to enter Korea or already in Korea at this point. Yeah. So like the military is respected and it's not like it's 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 coming off of World War Two, man. We we fucking beat the Nazis. We did it. Absolutely. Hooray! They'll never come back, right? Right. Disputably, right. like one of the most patriot patriotic times in America, right? Oh like, yeah. Like even if uh-huh. even if you Huge. had even if you had problems with the government, you, you never yeah. lost faith in your country. And then the seventies happened, and then mm-hmm. the twenty sixteens happened, and then <laughs> oh, God, the two thousand ones happened. Uh, <laughs> um, but the uh, the whole red scare nature of the film to me is. Uh, not as prevalent as it would later become in other films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Invaders from Mars and stuff like that. It, it's it's almost like it's like it's aware that that exists, but it's not yep. caring and whatnot. I mean, the military men here we've got we've got we got Eddie, we've got McPherson, we've got Captain Hendry, our lead hero, Captain Hendry, <laughs> and <laughs> Hendry is uh, like they're they're kind of just laid back. They're not necessarily looking for an enemy. They're just kind of. Um, what would you call it? Uh, they're they're very uh, uh, they're aware that if a problem presents itself, they have a protocol for fixing it. But they're not like actively yeah. looking for like where's the communists? Like, <laughs> yeah, um, we have to boil the communists. Yeah, yeah, we have to boil. Well, it's just like a vegetable. Communist is just like a vegetable. You've got to boil it. <laughs> if you don't, I, boil- I do want to say I think my favorite thing about watching this movie. Uh, well, not my favorite thing about watching this movie because that's already the woman clearly, but. My favorite, uh, my favorite thing with the men was the opening card scene where they're playing those cards and they're just saying like a bunch of just like that. You know how you were talking about they wanted to get the jargon right, so mm-hmm. they're saying a bunch of like old timey phrases and saying like military jargon. And it was some of my favorite dialogue to listen to because it was kind of like that. That uh, oh gosh, what, what was one of the lines? There was one he said. He said, uh, "Oh, he's keeping his secrets like a bra." Or he's no, he's. He's nursing his secrets like a bride in June. I was like, like what? And then they like kept following it up with weirder and weirder stuff. I was like, I yeah. this is the kind of writing Listen, I like. You can't this just is have, what I want to hear. You can't just have military jargon. You need to have fucking alliteration and poetry. <laughs> and then the, yeah, the captain was like, I want to make sure that I've got a navigator and a and a co-pilot that. <laughs> Uh, that look, are dry behind the ears, and I was like, "What the fuck does dry behind the ears mean?" Look, Charlie, I need you to write this. To I need you to write this script no, as if I though they up. can be emotionally vulnerable up to a fucking point. Like, <laughs> 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 and I, I, speaking of their camaraderie and whatnot, they they do like the the. The dated misogyny of of like the bro mentality of just like yeah women <laughs> yeah <laughs> abound in oh, yeah, this no. movie. What was the one they were? Ta- oh, he was talking about Seattle. He's like Seattle's warm. Yeah. Which, first of all, I mean, I know he's comparing it to he, where they are, but yeah, the, uh, the, the Seattle they said they have girls without fur yeah. pants on. Girls without fur pants. And I'm like, what are and you then, afraid <laughs> of having sex with a beast person? Come on, man, get fucking loosen uh, up. <laughs> the other one he's talking about. They were talking about the general, and he's like he's like yeah what do you think he's doing there is there anything worth doing other than seeing women it's like what well they wear a whole lot less clothes which i if you ask me i think they're doing it right it's like well okay yeah clearly women are objects yeah good thing that they know how to cook food because that's the only way you're gonna get out of this yeah (laughs) but the only way they become a, a formidable enemy is if they um i don't know write a note on their right? captain's yeah. uh, 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 regarding their captain's legs and putting it on his chest. <laughs> the- See, okay, so I want to get I want to get one really random thought out real quick because you said that uh, 
Oh my gosh. The air force didn't want that. They said that if it was a dream, that would have been fine. Yeah. You know, I think if at the end they would have been like, it was all just a commercial for a really good GE oven. And they're like, <laughs> your, are your vegetables too tough on your teeth? Soften them up. And then you just, I think it's perfect for it. Remember people keep watching the skies and remember <laughs> nothing cooks out roast in the oven as much as GE does with Jeez. its four lit gaslight, something, something or other. Gaslight. <laughs> and since it's the 1950s, someone's going to be lighting their cigarette on the, the GE too. Oh, they do Take the, it from me. Yeah, they do that. And then they throw the cigarette in there and then it sets the, it starts the oven. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but, yeah. The old classic. Yeah. The, the, and this is also where, uh, like, Within the uh, first couple of uh, minutes here, we are given the thrust of the plot. Something has landed in uh, uh, near uh, near a research base outside of Anchorage. It's a hundred miles north. They're assigned to go out and uh, see what it is. Which, by the way, I, I want I wanted to point this out. The general states in here uh, that F- Fogarty says, "Close the door as he enters." <laughs> Hendry's an idiot. This is the first thing you should do if you're working in the fucking snow. Close the door first. What do you live in a barn? <laughs> I like the the second guy. When the second guy walks in, the door is open for less than half of a second. Close the door, and it's like right after he comes in, he's like, "We." It's like we've got a revolving door around here, it's like, uh, bro. Yeah, I, I get you, but like. I, you, you, he just opened the door. It's like if I said, Anthony, close the door yeah. right before he even has a chance to. It, I, the, the, to me, like I'm on Fogarty's side because it's just like, look, this should have. This was in basic training day one. We work in the Arctic. You close the door the moment oh, your yeah. foot slips in there. A commie could get in. A commie, a commie could get in. What do you want to get commies in here? You want us to be? You, you want us to be riddled with propaganda regarding human decency and proper working conditions and plants and meal times and plants. Oh yeah, you don't want that plant communism coming in, yeah? They'll turn us into vegetables, goddammit. <laughs> There's and like they get the assignment there, and uh, uh, Hendry goes like, "Well, can I bring Scotty along?" And he's just like, "I don't care if he fucking freezes to death over there. <laughs> Let Scotty die." <laughs> uh, maybe maybe some of the actors actually worked for craft services, so they just couldn't get food off their minds. So they just went with the vegetable thing the entire time. <laughs> Cabbages, carrots, all of it. They just went for it. Hey, mm-hmm. hey, Howard, I know we can't afford food, but can we at least contribute creatively by pointing out our lack of food by talking about how you're giving us nothing but vegetables on this set? Why not? Vegetables. Are good for you <laughs> the, the uh that now they get over to the base and whatnot and by the way these aerial shots are fantastic this is a mm-hmm. testament to howard hawk's uh obsession with a- aviation um not 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 the least of which is work with only angels have wings where he uses these lovely miniatures combined with practical to create a wonderful epic of the era um and he had worked with aviation material in a previous in previous films so he's he's in, infatuated with the air and it shows like yeah. even if this is just him producing again we'll get to that later even if it's just him producing he clearly says i want an emphasis on these so mm. it does provide proper scale to the production and especially if this is a low budget and you're filming in cutbank montana for a lot of the shoot and the exteriors yeah. you're getting a lot out of it like you you're doing yeah. a good job with it it's by funny because during that my that scene, my wife uh, happened to walk by and she was like, what are you watching? And so I told her and I think he said that he said one of the weird lines at that point, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, the the, 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 the taxpayers should see this. 
which I thought was really funny for some reason. But the flyover, I she even she was like, this doesn't look like an old this shot doesn't look like an old movie scene. I was like, and then the black and white, you're right. Like this scene doesn't look bad for flyover stuff. It's interesting. And then yeah. Howard Hawks comes out of the ca- television and goes, you're goddamn right, lady. <laughs> I know how to shoot a fucking plane. <laughs> Where do they shoot the sets? Do you know? So I have that information. Uh, there is uh, shooting primarily taking place in Cutbank, Montana uh, for the majority of the um, scenes uh, where they find the flying saucer. Give me one quick second Yeah, that here. makes sense. So it's not say, a... Go ahead. No, go in, ahead. Indoors, um, in the sets, like you can very clearly see the rhythm of somebody throwing snow out <laughs> the window, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I was like, why would you go to Montana? Just shoot that where the fuck ever, because you just have your grip throwing snow. Yeah. <laughs> well, they they can definitely intercut shots between that and the studio. It's mainly the bigger portions where they're, um, uh, they do that. Uh, the iconic shot of them circling around to gauge the yes. uh, size of the uh, of the piece. So before we go to there, though, holy we should- cats! It's a perfect circle. Oh my god! Holy fucking cats! Holy cat! I have, I was, I, I had to finally learn this once and for all. What this holy cats, like, wh- where does this come from? And Urban Dictionary is a godsend. It describes holy cats as an expression of sheer and utter disbelief derived from the more common expression holy cow, which is of Hindi origins. Entomologists have tracked the phrase to a specific household in Colorado where two and perhaps more males have recorded have been recorded using the expression. It is rumored that the expression will soon inexplicably spread through much of Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's why I love urban dictionaries. They just fuck with people. But like wow. I love that they oh. just said, like, well, holy cats is gonna be derived from Colorado, clearly. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> holy cats. Guys. This is a time. This is a time uh, alteration and such. We technically came up with holy cats, and then Howard Hawks stole it. Oh, brought it back. Because we're two guys in Colorado. (laughs) Yes. Anthony was confused. He's like, "Who's in Colorado?" Wait, Anthony, are you Howard Hawks? (laughs) (gasps) No, I will bring every dollar I can get out of you. (laughs) Do you have any stories about a leopard that gets loose and Cary Grant has to save it? Wow, what a what an obscure reference! Oh, I don't even happy. know what you're. Oh, bringing up ba- bringing up baby, one of the greatest screwball comedies of all time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, now you, I know. You love break bringing up baby. I had to learn to love that movie better, and I, I okay. I'm glad that I do. Um, but um, yeah, no, like they shoot this with a crew of uh, the, the the crew has is divvied up in a very interesting way to um get the most out of it that they can. So they're shooting background plates while they're shooting this main footage. And I just love the economy of it, but it also lends Mm. credibility to the whole idea of like, well, who's directing this piece? Well, the answer is it's kind of a combination of both things in a certain respect, because they had second unit crews. They had Mm. outside effects crews. There were 10 actors on that set and 27 crew members um, and then Harlan, Har- DP Harlan would shoot the main stuff while Harold Stein would shoot the background place. And you have two of those crews working in conjunction. And we meet Dr. Carrington before we get to the site. And Dr. Carrington is very much, like we said, he's written to be the reason why science is so full of shit. Because all they want to do is protect these things that can kill us. And like, I, I don't know, like for, for me, like... 
I, I can't stand the way this logic happens in sci-fi movies of the 50s because I'm just like, no, they're they're technically correct. You've you've got to keep it alive for observation, like at the at a bare minimum. You have to let him do his job before you decide to shoot it. Like 100 percent They're like hundred well, percent. We, we don't know anything about it. It's like, well, that's why you learn. <laughs> but you wanna know what you don't do? You don't then keep the egg, the testicle egg sack <laughs> plant alive and growing new ones. You you don't do that. No, no, you don't. That that that's obsession. Like that. Now that's a that's a clever writing trick where I'm like, okay, they do justify his scummery. Yes. With with a yes. with a clear cut motive. However, prior to that, we are treating him like such an inconvenience. When they get, they go to blow up the with thermite charges, as Brent alluded to. Get the thermite bombs. Yeah, they 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 now the GE oven with enough power <laughs> of the thermite bomb. <laughs> Honey, is the roast ready? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, dear. how many how many thermite bombs do I need to turn it up to? <laughs> hey, uh, uh, did you see in the in, in the latest uh, Collier's magazine they have the ad for the new thermite gas grill? <laughs> you said you just dump an entire gallon drum of kerosene into it and just let the magic happen. You want if you want a steak cooked just right, thermite oh. gas grill. <laughs> If you don't do if you don't do it, if you don't do it, you're an emasculated wuss. (laughs) And blow off your hand in a way bigger explosion than anyone else. It's like Homer Simpson throwing all of that lighter fluid onto the grill in Treehouse of Horror Part One. (laughs) And then he just puts the match up. (laughs) Um the uh but yeah, so they get the they get the they they blow up the charge and it sets off the it sets off ablaze the entirety of the ship inside. So basically the ship landed and it skidded off and then it had enough heat emanating from it that it descended into the ice. And it's the one thing that I wish one of the thing movies would show eventually is the ship descending into the ice. I know we don't need it, but since we've got a perfect version of the thing already with John Carpenter, now we yep. can do anything. I want to see that. I want to see a good budgeted effect of that ship sinking into the ice and seeing whatever the thing is supposed to be, or at least hearing it freaking out going like, Oh fuck. No, <laughs> I guess I gotta get frozen in the ice. And they, they blow it up. The ship starts melting inside, and they're like, "Well, good job, you fucking explosion-loving idiots." This is Scotty, yep. by the way. Scotty's um, just like, "Oh, big deal." <laughs> going back to the uh, to it sinking into the thing real quick, I took a note at eighteen forty-six in the movie. One character states, "A jet," uh, as like as like why uh, why it sunk into the ice. He goes, "Well, a jet can heat a fifty-story office building." Now. <laughs> I submit to you that if um, a jet in the fifties uh, um, could uh, heat a fifty-story office building, could a modern jet with concentrated heat in a small area be able to melt steel beams? Oh, see, that's that's for another podcast that I decide not to listen to. <laughs> steel beams, even real? <laughs> steel beams are an illusion by the government. <laughs> 
<laughs> Anyways, we can move on. Yeah, that no, no, that, that, that's a good I note. Liked it. That's a good I, note I to bring. It. You're just like, what if? What if? Mm-hmm. Just hear me out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In a movie full of uh, absolutely wonderful science facts. Oh yeah, I just yeah. wanted to state that. Anthony, I am the most scientifically factual person here. Howard mm-hmm. Hawks here. I am the most scientifically <laughs> accurate director in Hollywood history. <laughs> um, they get the they they do discover like oh no there is something in the ice we've saved it it is a big conveniently square shaped block of ice yep. mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. that contains the thing Scotty's just like oh boy oh boy I've got a story oh boy oh boy <laughs> and the government's and the government and the uh, Dr. Chapman's rightfully so going like slow your roll uh, sweetheart we've we've got to wait until we get authorization and he, Scotty yeah. just goes on like fuck you freedom of the press yep 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 dude you you you, you, you you, you gotta calm the fuck down. <laughs> I'm gonna make this iceberg great again. God damn it! Uh, oh God, no! <laughs> I, I, and I'll bring it back up, I guess, at the end. But like the entire, the 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 like resolution to his shenanigans was so overplayed to me. Mm-hmm. Like they put so much dramatic, like emphasis on the last shot with him, like telling him anyways we'll get there it's no just, but- I, I i get what you're saying like he is he he has to his arc where he eventually learns something comes at the cost of him being this up and down like scotty is comic relief that then gets to be austere at the end and it's yeah a little it's a little off i don't like i'm not well, like i'm not gonna shake my fist at it but the plot logic too is like they were like, it could be a million years old in this thing. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, he's like, watch the fucking skies. They could come any goddamn second. Which- and it's just like, <laughs> it was never like a million years. Like it could have just been like an accident that well, it was here. Uh, <laughs> but, but the lo- but the logic indicates because they do, they, they saw things landing via their spectroscope, spectroscope cameras oh, shit, or whatever the fuck. Right. Yeah. So it just landed. So that's yeah. that's their insinuation of it. Whereas in the John Carpenter's The Thing, it's oh, alluded that it's- Oh, I'm totally mixing it up. It, you know, it's, it's, I mean, they do say like, it could have been in there for a million years. Like they say that in the dialogue, yeah. but like yeah. the whole like, the whole concept of it, I like the idea that it's been laying dormant for years as opposed uh-huh. to just like- agree. <laughs> yeah. Oh shit, we yeah. took a long, wrong turn at Albuquerque and now we're here in 1950 America. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> keep watching the fucking skies and um they get it back there they put it in a in a room designed to keep it cold because they've got to wait to get authorization to actually study it this yeah. pisses they, off carrington yeah. <laughs> put it in our new ge freezer <laughs> larger than life you want your put, you want your blood free dogs inside of it with <laughs> other corpses you want your balls to drop off from terrifying fright frostbite <laughs> nothing does that like a ge freezer <laughs> If you need to pack all the meat of the dead bodies from the aliens in your backyard, our freezer's just right for you. By the way, all of our advertising slogans are being written uh, by John Hamm from Mad Men. Not this, not this, <laughs> <laughs> not his character, just John Hamm. He yep, came in John to help Hamm. us out. Yeah. Um, now, Thanks, John Hamm. You can go now. Oh, no, John. No, John, stay. I just want to look at you for a couple of hours. That's a good <laughs> point. Actually, that's really good. A, but I need you in a suit and a tie and smoking at least 13 cigarettes in an hour. Yeah, and I need you to get facts about Lucky Strike cigarettes and its history yeah. as a company wrong because yeah. god damn it. Mad Men. <laughs> if you Sorry. could go on if you could go on long rants that seem like they're going nowhere but then come back to a valid point <laughs> that make me feel something, that'd be awesome. <laughs> 
I'd love the shit out of that. Um, so they get they they go to get confirmation from uh, from the general that they can uh, unfreeze anything or do anything, and they do get it. But communications are being cut off on the radio; like th- their static is interfering with everything. But it basically gives enough for Carrington to like they're they're staying hold tight until observation can be done. Carrington's like, oh, blast it, um, and. Carrington's work kind of comes to him on a silver platter because uh, one of the uh, one of one of the one of our uh, army guys goes up to uh, Hendry and goes like, hey, you know, I'm looking at that thing inside the ice and it's fucking creeping me out, man. Can we like do two hour shifts so we don't have to look at it as long? (laughs) (laughs) Just 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 look in another direction. I'm just heebie. I'm just heebie, bro. You know, I don't want to be so heebie-jeebie. If the ice is still frozen and the room is frozen, you can look in the corner. <laughs> That's your job. He but literally turns water, his back. Not frozen. But you by know, the way, but you know what? One of them comes up with a great solution. Well, I'm just gonna put a blanket over it. What's that? An electric blanket? Mm-hmm. A GE yep. electric blanket? No. <laughs> oh, <shit>. Now <laughs> a GE electric blanket. <laughs> you want the same technology as our thermite bombs? <laughs> Your you legs will burn you right want, off. You want to heat up faster than an alien in a block of ice? <laughs> GE has your back. <laughs> It's really funny because last night, Anthony, I recorded an episode of Poptimistic and it did not, it ended up being half uh, ads. And I feel like we're turning this one into half ads. This is the Poptimistic contribution. Like mm-hmm. you, This is our, our G- improvised product placement. GE is a proud sponsor of Poptimistic as it was for the Girly <laughs> Show or TGS with Tracy Jordan. <laughs> Jenna Maroney. Jenna Maroney. Oh, God. Let's just talk about 30 Rock for the rest of the time. Uh, now, um, oh, yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> um, now we do get... Uh, so the thing does escape. Yep. And uh, the uh, what a movie would be if it didn't. Yeah, mm. like and I. By, by the way, as they in the time when they are trying to, uh, in the time that they are trying to figure out what they're going to do with it, they they do more uh, anti science jargon. Uh, and one of the <laughs> lines from uh, Hendry is like, "Ah, the kids, nine year olds drooling over a new fire engine." Like, what the fuck. <laughs> I love it so much. You know, some ghostwriter came in and was like, we don't have enough metaphors and similes and just went to fucking town. Yeah, we, we don't have we don't <laughs> have got en- all of them. We don't have enough alliteration and synony- synonyms and other uh, uh, literary terminology to describe what wusses scientists are. Can you come yeah. in, random writer and whatnot? <laughs> Why sure? Why not? I, it, it, it's it's crazy. They also do something that I, Anthony, I thought you would love. This is that. Um, I mean, now in when they're hanging out in the barracks before Scotty goes in and goes like, "You understand what happens when this story is leaked now and everything's and and my editor's like writhing around the room and whatnot." There is an announcement over the PA going. Professor Voorhees, come to the laboratory. <gasps> Professor Voorhees. I didn't catch that. The what? base is at Camp Crystal Lake, guys. A lost opportunity. A lost yeah, opportunity. Seriously? Is Jason Voorhees going like, the, the, thing, the thing has escaped. We have to break out the weapon. And then they go to a cryogenic tube like in Jason X, and it's Jason. God, oh, I would love that. Time to take out James Arness. 
Okay, well, I know what we're going to be redoing. I, as a I fan said film it sounds like soon. we need to start Blum, making a movie. Blumhouse, yeah. Blumhouse, we're mm-hmm. on the phone. <laughs> hey, you know, Zach and I are in the same state now. We'll meet up. We'll start storyboarding. Oh, things. My... We'll get things moving. We'll, we'll get Hitchcockian this. with the detail right yeah. here. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This, this There's going to be so many penises in this film. It's going to be nuts. <laughs> it, it's Jason. Jason literally hangs nuts. at Dong. Literally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's And also before this, we're getting more of this subplot with Hendry and uh, Nikki, the, the secretary to Carrington. Oh, yeah. And just uh, look. The romance that has a one side chemistry and it's definitely <laughs> not the man. If there is it's evidence, so if there is evidence of Hawks directly directing a scene, it, this yeah. comes the closest because Hawks does have screwball a comedy background where you know content like this he was he was good with he was very yeah. very good with and connoting that speed or, or that banter and uh, this comes out of it but it's the uh, it's it's the least appealing and uh, frankly it's just boring like that's the thing I, I'm just... she tries so hard the actress is so good so good. and even the concept of her like them already having a fling and she's still flirting was done a little bit better than I would have expected because usually it's like just, uh, you know, oh, she's pining over him and, oh, she can't do anything without him, right? Like, that's the stereotype. And then in right. this, she's kind of giving him shit. She's like, get, you know, pushing back a little bit, but it's all really flirty and she totally owns it. That actress killed it. Yeah. Meanwhile, her scene partner is just this fucking concrete it's, it's wall of concrete. It, it's <laughs> he has no personality. Has it's zero like negative if personality. A beautiful flower tried to fuck a wall. The wall, you know, or, you know the wall's not going to reciprocate anything. You're just going to smash your pretty colors all over it. And another thing, at the end of the scene, they do end up kissing, but uh, but it, kind why, of. Why in the fifties do men? Why is kissing just smearing your lips over everything? He's like oh, that's motorboating the, a face. That's the you, do you that's, know, that's that, the code. That's the code right there. Yeah. I will tell you that is directly the code. No tongue. Oh, yeah, no. your that's your pheromones. That's where your pheromones live. You stick them inside <laughs> their mouth and then and, <laughs> and an I'll, X-rated film if they're a pheromone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rubbing my my upper pheromones on yours. <laughs> Well, and like, it's hard for me because he's like, she's very like animated and fun. And like, she's trying to be all like, she has, she has, she has a personality. Kenneth Toby is a, Kenneth Toby is a vessel for something. (laughs) Boredom. I I think the real twist at the end of the movie that they didn't tell us is he's actually a cyborg and has no emotions. You know what? That explains. So I didn't, I didn't tell the intergalactic cyborg plant war. Yeah. So in that weird scene where he's tied up, and she seems to find it extremely sexual and he seems to be very <laughs> bored yeah. and then unties himself and then she gets a match out. Okay. Two things about this scene. She does not have a cigarette for herself at all. So she has seen his hands are out. She hands him a cigarette, gives him the cigarette, yeah. lights the match for the cigarette, then goes to put it up and light it. And then she realizes yeah. so that is my other part where I was like, this is the most sexist movie of all time. Because they're like, she's so dumb, she won't even know until it's right there. So I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. I will offer an alternative theory because this is a okay. this is a comedy trick. This is a screwball trick, or I mean, it's a comedy of any kind of trick where somebody is doing right. something that proves right. like, oh, I got out of this, or like I did something, and the and it takes yes. a minute for somebody to notice. Here's the thing: this is the thing from another world, and not bringing up baby. Uh, so you can't like, I, I, you you can't. Um, 
you you can't you can't try the chicanery in there. Um, mm-hmm. And we're getting closer to the end here because basically, with the thing having escaped, yep, the 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 the, the whole base is in a panic. There are multiple instances where the th- where they track down the thing as they're looking for it. The big key things on this plot involve. Uh, them going into the greenhouse and discovering that yep. there has been a that there has been activity there because they're using a Geiger counter to determine his mm-hmm. position and whatnot. Oh, one thing I wanted to bring up is like I always forget, and like Star Trek does this a lot too, is like they get away with like low budget sci fi things by simply stating what should be like a cool special effect. So they're like, um, what is it when they were like uh, above the UFO mm-hmm. flying? They're like the compass is moving around and not pointing towards north. This is insane. And then it's like, they're like next to the thing and they're like, the Geiger counter is going crazy. And it's like, you don't even put the beeps. You yeah. don't do anything. You <laughs> yeah. just say it. Gene it's Roddenberry totally... saw that and he's just like, well, say, what yeah. if that, but if, what's what yeah. sound effects? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, well, we could just make everything out of cardboard. It's okay. Agreed. And, 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 the, but, and also that's kind of uh, exemplary in um, uh, the, uh, the scene where, so, like, when the thing gets out and they first encounter it and they have their first attack with it, the thing uh, escape. Well, the thing escapes. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And goes out into the snow and attacks some dogs and it's a dog fucked up by some dogs. Yeah, yeah, the dogs are much more aggressive in this than they'll ever be in any other thing movie going forward. <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah, right. The but thing, by the way, the that, dogs are baiting those movies. <laughs> yeah, this scene yeah. was pretty cool. Like it did look like those dogs are going at him, and I was like, I was actually a little impressed. And it's it was actually a good shot too. Like it was, it looked like a painting a little bit, mm-hmm. like foreground, midground, yep. where it's like backlit, so you see the like yep. uh, him flailing around as like dogs are fucking going at him and then like a kind of a sprinkle of snow over the the background it was actually Mm -hmm. i i thought that was actually really beautiful that was probably one of my favorite shots of the film he looks like a shape rather than a man you could say he's the shape and then john carpenter sees that and goes yep say what that what if that but a shatner mask (laughs) yeah he sees it and he goes instead of making a cabbage patch person I'll make something interesting. What if, what what if pure evil that Donald Pleasance must shoot six times? Shoot him in the heart. Um, yes. Now yes. they, but when they leave, they get the arm and they bring it back, and we get the full breakdown. Which I, I mean, let's be let's be honest. the The explanation of what the thing is is goofy as shit. Yeah, um, I kind of got lost a little bit. I was like, I did too. Because this scene and I watched really it done twice. Well. The writing was terrible. Oh, the the the, the the writing which instigates that the thing is made up of vegetable matter. Essentially, they equate I, it to vegetable matter. Well, it was do, a do joke, you guys, so it didn't come across see, as exposition. It came yeah. across as a joke. Yeah, that's what I thought too. But then it's like. Do you think that they shot this and then realized that like the monster looks like cabbage and then they went back and were like, <laughs> it's made of vegetables because, you know, like... I don't think they could afford reshoots on this movie, Brent. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, that's, that's, fair. The, the, that's fair. The whole explanation of it, like it's it's not vegetable explicitly. It's used as a comparison and slash right. as a joke, as Anthony alluded right. to. It's basically alluding to it. it has no traditional matter. It's consistent of like a plant kind of like plant kind of idea. But Mm -hmm. it's feeding off of the plasma of blood, and that's how it sustains itself. And the way he describes the evolution of man and comparing it to the evolution of the thing is like, you know, who, you know, nobody would have believed that uh, 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 leeches and fish and everything from the sea would evolve into man. So how do we know that these (laughs) these guys didn't evolve from some form of tiny pea or (laughs) carrot? It's like this is. 
this must have worked in 1950, I guess, for <laughs> somebody. I don't know who, but it clearly did for somebody. And I mean, I mean, to be fair, like, so as I said, this is only like the third movie I've seen from this time period. Uh, huh. As as someone, if I okay, if I lived in that, if I lived in the 1950s, and I you know, had not seen the new one or the 1982 one, you know, no knowledge of that. I would have enjoyed this movie. Okay. I think, I think that, and maybe this is just because I don't watch a lot of this stuff. I I had a lot of fun with like the, it was kind of like seeing the men be like the gossipy, like we're always talking about what other people are doing. And we're like, Hey, uh, you hear about that? It was just like fun to hear all of that lingo and stuff. Cause I feel like in uh, last man on earth, there's there wasn't a lot of possibility for that because he was just talking to himself for the most part. Well, it's, it's in the title, Brent. I'm the last man on earth. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it was nice. It was nice hearing uh, what was essentially the same man f- for four different types of man, but all the same person essentially at the core. Talk to each other was fun. Oh yeah, I I totally agree. And like full disclosure, I give this movie four stars on Letterbox because I still do appreciate the sci-fi elements yeah. of it that come straight Absolutely. out of the 50s it is no, i was gonna say i think it's really advanced for a 50s movie like even if they took out all the shit that made the book cool um <laughs> they, it still struck me as something that felt like it was ahead of its time yeah yeah it, it, i i think yeah. that's exemplified in the scene where carrington reveals that he's been uh cultivating little miniature yes. things yes. inside there yep. right. the yep. I, the idea of it where he's feeding the blood downward, like this is a weird comparison, but the movie Motel Hell reverses this and has hmm. people planted into the ground and they feed them to then uh, stuff them up so that they can turn them into meat. Like there's just like there's imagery and ideas that then get carried over into later horror films and the idea of like building a crop of some kind. Right. Right. And that that and that scene was the one that finally i was like oh it wasn't a joke about a carrot they were like literally saying he's like a carrot like it didn't like again it was just the failings of that first scene uh and that scene is the one that cemented it for me because that's when i felt like okay oh i get what's going on here and i understand and it feels pretty cool yeah oh that's pretty rad like yeah beating heart like the plants were moving and shit like that was probably the most sci-fi part of the whole thing was this Mm -hmm. small scene with the plants and it was very cool yeah i think Oh, go ahead. No, go no, ahead. you go ahead, please. Well, I, I was going to say, I think if I, there was ever, because like I said, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it for the most part. I like, I think it was fun to watch. I would absolutely watch it with you guys again, because I think there's some funny things we could talk about. But I, I uh, now lost my train of thought and <laughs> am going to sit down quietly and remain quiet. It doesn't matter. You know what, Brent? It doesn't matter because we're going to get to the, well, it, it does matter. Please remember it when you can. But until then, we will take Shameful. you back to the base. And right now at the base, they are figuring out, they are slowly figuring out how to, how to harm it and damage it. And they, uh, <laughs> they stand off with the thing uh, in the dormitory uh, for that fire suit effect sequence. Yes. Now, yes. Anthony, you alluded to this being ex- oh, incredibly yes. fucking dangerous. And holy shit, when I watched the scene where they lighted on fire, I was like, "How? How? How? And why? And also, everybody could have died." Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, that was insane. This so this shot was uh, these shots were again done on RKO Stage Seven. 
Um, it consisted of eight stuntmen, four cameramen, five electricians, two grips, two prop men, a cable man, six of six special effects men, one painter, two firemen, a doctor, and Whoa. a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when the fire, once the fire began, like once they started doing the actual fire effects, the main actors were moved away from the set to make way for this stunt crew. Um, Tom Steele, uh, James Arness's double, was protected b- from the flames by an, abs- a- an asbestos covering. Uh, the head makeup was fireproof plastic. He was able to breathe from tubes that ran from his nostrils to an opening in the chest. Burns did occur, though, despite the precautions. Ooh. So it actually like was a successful stunt for the most part. It's the natural burns of not having the same flammable suits that exist today. Yeah. Yeah. Where, yeah, where you sure. can genuinely pull off those kind of effects for like you can have somebody walking around theoretically for a longer period than yeah, James like Arnett. 30 seconds to a minute. I did yeah. I did make a note of the way uh Tom Steele or Arnes depending on who's it's it's definitely Steele. The way he's um after they're burning him uh alive he jumps out the window like Superman. <laughs> the city needs me (laughs) yeah and he they get he gets away and um as they're figuring out how can we further destroy it that's when the heat gets shut off uh and well i want to go back to that scene real quick because sure go ahead i do want to say that like i think that was probably the most like genuinely best scene because it's so high stakes and so dramatic. I think it's and also it, the the visual. The visual it's is amazing. Huge. It's it the visual. Like I, if the actors weren't on the scene when fire happened, it's absolutely incredible because it was seamless. I mm. swore, like re, I was like watching it wide eyed, mm. going, "Those fucking act like watching someone splash kerosene or whatever on something and see the flame spread next to actors." Like it, see, yeah. it was so real. Yeah, and it looked incredible. I was like, and it looked like those were the real actors. So I don't know if they did some <clears> sort of trickery or what, but like, I was very scared for those actors. That made me remember what I was gonna say. Yeah, woo, there you go. Woo. <laughs> the thing that I wish uh, would have been a little bit different was one. We've got like this big cast of like four hundred dudes and one chick. So <laughs> let's kill more of them off. I agree. Of That's yeah. what let's I have more yeah. people people die off and i know yeah. it's you know back then probably a little bit different they don't want to they wouldn't let us do a bloodbath <laughs> yeah so but here's my other thing let's rely on more of the suspense and uh mystery of the creature let's continue to find the bodies in weird ways and stuff like that you know like let's do that a little bit more get more of that fear and terror of like what is this thing and what can it do before we see it um, yeah, there's a. I have something at the end of our conversation regarding that okay. that I talked with Anthony about in the pre in the pre talk. Okay. You're right. The, there needs to be more suspense of finding. Like one of the most suspenseful scenes in the movie for me is when they're in the greenhouse and they're wondering if there's something in that little yep. cabinet there, and then they yep. open it up and the score just stings you hard, and you see yeah. a dog flop out of there. Like that's it's. That it was one of the most effective moments. It was one of the most effective moments for that. And I said, modern mm -hmm, moment. mm -hmm, That's when it started to feel ahead of its time. Oh, yeah. It it was a jump scare. Yep. It's, it's, it's astounding. Like this movie does, you know, like it treads more towards sci fi, but it is a horror movie. Like it actively participates as a horror movie. And that shot in the, with, with them setting him ablaze, that's, that's one of the moments where the look of the thing being shrouded in darkness works to a mm-hmm. benefit because yep. you do get 
because the fl- one the flames accentuate that a little bit. Yeah. But two, it just it's an iconic image of the idea of like if this is their version of what the thing is, this is the perfect personification of it from a yes. visual standpoint. Everything yes. else is just a man in a suit. This is it, a presence. I think that this movie in being made when it was, they did like you're saying, they did a really good job with some of the effect stuff, which is awesome. I think the one thing that would have just made maybe the monster better is only ever seeing the silhouette. Like mm-hmm. if they didn't succeed in killing it at the end or anything, you know, like there's just a silhouette. That's all you see the entire time at the very most of the monster is a silhouette. Yeah. You don't have anything pretty. Iconic. And you have to, then your brain has to then fill in some of the details itself to be like, this is what is scary. So it's different for each person to where they're then scared for a different reason, which I think would have been a better approach. So it gives you more freedom to kind of do more things with it. You know, like, oh, it killed this person this way, but then this person a completely different way. Like, how is this happening? What is it doing? Which would have been but like possible I said, I enjoyed if it a lot. It would have so. been possible if they had stuck to the original source material and not yeah. um, and not diverted into this. And when you were reading the original source material, I was like, wait. I wish that would have been what I watched because that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Watch I, the Carpenter version. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, like, in a, again, in a, in a lot of ways, if you were to redo this particular concept, it would be a slasher movie today. It wouldn't be yep. the, right. it wouldn't be the same concept. This would be a slasher movie. The thing would be a Jason Voorhees kind of thing. Right. Um, or Professor Voorhees. I'm sorry. I forgot his actual uh, credentials from <laughs> Camp, Camp Crystal yeah. Lake U. Um, <laughs> uh, now, as I um, now we get to the moment where the thing has shut off the pa- of the heat because apparently yep. he is that smart that he can do that even though I would which I didn't read well because if you are smart enough to turn off the heat then you should mm-hmm. be smart enough to when the the scientist would have been mm-hmm. more correct in coming up to him and and doing the appeal to humanity in a way i'm glad you brought that up because carrington ascribes too much uh benefit of the doubt of the doubt to this monster in a way that is comical which is why the idea of how they're presenting scientists to me is fucking flawed because i'm just like you can't be this like uh, like close-minded if you're a scientist like it's it feels it feels disingenuous the way they write that the carrington character even though uh, Cornthwaite is giving a wonderful performance as the doctor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And he, he's already stuck in this mental loop of just like, we must protect it for science and blah, 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 blah. And meanwhile, Henry and the others are trying to figure out of a plan to destroy it. And they're trying to figure it out by killing it with fire. And mm-hmm. then, um, Dr. Redding comes up with the, the sweater vested Dr. Redding comes up with a <laughs> wonderful solution. Now, of course, the solution on how to kill the thing would come from one George Watt Fenneman. Uh, he was a radio announcer. He was a uh, slight actor in certain respects and a game show host. But many would know him as Groucho Marx's faithful assistant on You Bet Your Life. In this film, ladies and gentlemen, the secret word is electricity. Really? You bet your life! Uh, the, uh... Yes, uh, George Fenneman is uncredited in this film, and he actually uh, apparently got the role uh, by being neighbors with Christian Nyby, the credited director on the film. Um, huh. But he goes uncredited, which is kind of weird. A lot of the actors in this film are unknowns from the stage or unknowns from radio, so you wouldn't know their appearance, but you might recognize their voice. And Fenneman's, Fenneman's is very uh, recognizable. So when you're hearing him talking about how we're going to um there's enough cable to reach the greenhouse 
hook in a new transformer with a high voltage outfit and give us plenty of amps and then leads to two poles to catch him uh, and then basically electrocute him to death. The whole time I'm listening to this is going like, well, how many uh, how many dollars are the two contestants up in this current round of You Bet Your Life? <laughs> Has the duck come down yet to give them the $100? Um, now, like, that's, that's where my brain goes, but... Nobody else is really going to know it. I wish he had gone credited because I'd love for people to be like, yeah, George Fenneman, uh, the the host of You Bet Your Life and the reason that the thing died. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they get this plan together and they lay in this whole series of traps to get him in, including a very uh, uh, slim barricade to like temporarily disable him. <laughs> um, like this, like it like literally looks like you uh, like put up a railroad guard, like but one made out of wood. Um, and the thing comes bounding and bounding through the hallway. And suddenly as they're trying to get the proper aim to then release this electrical output, the power goes out. Of course it's Carrington going like, I won't let you kill it. I won't let you kill it. <laughs> Well, my I, you baby, know I, you know what I noticed is that exactly, exactly. I put a timestamp exactly one hour in Carrington says the word that does not exist irregardless. And I just want to say that hey. people don't trust doctors anymore. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's right. They started using the word irregardless. And then that's yep. why mm-hmm. nobody's getting the vaccine. That's exactly. right. I, oh, that makes more sense now. Oh. Yeah. It all makes sense. Let's yeah. It, it, it only, it totally makes sense. Um, Anyway, they, uh, but yes, they, they get the power restored and, um, Carrington goes like, no, I won't let you do this. And he goes up to talk to the, to the thing and he's talking to Arness and he's going like, listen to me. I know you're a rational, rational being. You're more intelligent than any of us. This is a gentleman who fucking stated the fact of just like our duty to the, to the brain of our society is to stand and stand here and die mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that this creature may live. Mm-hmm. Like it's very over the top. Like the, 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 the like themes behind that are weird to me. Cause number one, it does make sense. His argument makes sense that, Oh, it, it built a craft that can go like across universes. We can't do that. It must be smarter than us. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's also saying like, you know, uh, well, I don't want to disparage anybody, but like, you know, the 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 you could be talking to the least intelligent human being who doesn't understand how to do rocket science. And you're just like, I don't know. So but, but then also the theme of the character behind it is like, uh, it's kind of an anti-science statement, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's like you're very wrong. You died for your sin of being a scientist, and the army is gonna save y'all. Like yep. very yep. American. <laughs> interesting huh that's weird that's weird i, I agree what, what an odd theme for a movie to have <laughs> especially in america oh yeah, yeah no strange. yeah yeah we it's the country that developed the atom bomb like that that required science like so <laughs> well let's we only developed the atom bomb because our thermite bombs weren't doing it you know what you know what Humanity's going to top that with the solar night bomb from plan nine from outer space you know we can't use it though because yeah. we we have to prove those aliens wrong that we're not stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> um, and... They call the planet Earth. <laughs> Earth. Every trope I've ever heard about a movie where aliens are talking about Earth. We should make a fake '50s sci-fi movie called Planet E Dash Earth. The terror from Earth. Rated R. 
<laughs> um, and so they the 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 creature uh, is uh, the thing is not listening to Carrington, so he's like "fuck you," and he just tosses him yeah. and like throws and that. I guess fucker. he dies because of that. Or something. He doesn't. He's nursing. He doesn't. He's oh. nursing wounds. They say it in the dialogue at the end. He's nursing wounds. He nurses his wounds like a mother in June. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's when they get him on the right spot, and they throw out the electrical. Uh, effect the destruction of the thing um, by electricity is planned as a straightforward initially it was initially it was planned as a straightforward mechanical effect supervised by Donald Stewart Kenneth Strickfadden who provided a lot of the electrical props for Frankenstein and the mask of Fu Manchu was brought in to provide those electrical effects but at last Linwood Dunn of the American Society of Cinematographers and head of the RKO camera effects department was sent for using the optical printer Dunn blended and smoothed the separate shots together with a series of elaborately controlled dissolves. Working on a moviola, he laid a a piece of film which had been developed into a medium-gray tone over the scene. He scribed markings resembling lightning in the emulsions of the gray film, animating the bolts frame by frame to strike the head in the hands of the creature. He then made a high-contrast dupe of the gray film and brought it back up to a solid black. The scribe marks initially betrayed their origins, being unnaturally hard and flecked with bits of emotion. When Dunn printed the lightning bolts over the scene, he corrected the problems by putting them slightly out of focus and printing through a piece of organdy gauze to disperse the light and give the edges of a glowing effect. So another instance of optical printing and in-camera effects. Uh, brought into this month's discussion. We've had three out of the four horror chats that we've had in the Ballyboo uh, have been uh, very much related to in-camera effects, which has been a wonderful talking point for the month. Interesting. And uh, it's nice to get some Linwood Dunn talk again um, in this particular <laughs> discussion, but they subdue the thing, R.I.P. thing. and um, thing. and uh, And so we get this final moment where... I guess the entire movie was an allegory for how Henry needed to settle down and marry a woman. I, I yeah, don't... they just they really made a big deal of that in the end. Yeah, and for his, some reason, Alfred Hitchcock's in the audience watching it, going like, "Oh, I can top that. I've got a story about a guy yeah. who's in a wheelchair and his leg is broken, and he does yes. not want to marry the most beautiful fucking woman on the planet, but mm. because he's too distracted by Raymond Burr killing his wife across the street, it's mm-hmm. it's pretty much going to be the best thing ever, guys. Perfection." Um, Perfection, yes. Perf- Hitchcock means perfection. I- I'm also mm-hmm. sponsored by GE Ovens as well because I I'm not below, <laughs> I'm not below getting some some sponsorship money. <laughs> and um, we get this elaborate speech by Scotty, who has learned his lesson, guys. He's learned it. Yes. He makes a statement that I, as he's I- expounding upon <laughs> the uh the the heroism that has been abound. He said something that made me question my own um, hyperbolicness that you guys are fully Mm -hmm. aware of. Uh, Mm -hmm. He said, a man named Noah once saved our world with an arc Mm -hmm. of wood. Here at the North Pole, Mm -hmm. a few men performed a similar service with an arc of electricity. Yes, Lord. (laughs) I don't think Scotty read the Bible. (laughs) An arc of lightning is not a big boat that carries two of every animal. No, 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 no. That that tracks. No, that tracks. Arc, A R K, Arc, A R C. Arc of lightning. Oh my god! Wait. It's, just, it's just one letter off, gentlemen. It all makes sense. Oh my god! Get this script to Howard and Christian right away. <laughs> <laughs> We've hit gold. 
Um, and of course he says like, well, while the, while Henry and Nikki are canoodling over there and about to embrace their new marriage, remember, keep watching the skies. <sighs> that line is so cheesy. However, I will submit to you gentlemen that the way it is delivered by Scotty, there is still something about it that sends a chill down my spine, regardless of yeah. it being a red scare allegory and all that stuff from a oh, sci-fi sure. concept. The whole idea, keep watching this guy's like, yeah. That's the kind of vibe that then permeates an entire series like the X-Files. The whole mm-hmm. idea of like they're, they're out there. Yeah. Like that's something beautiful in this movie. Yeah. E- even though we just talked about how this movie's anti-science and fucking yes. like, it's it's something lovely to look at from that perspective. Um now the photography of this film wrapped on March 3rd, 1951 with a budget of $1,257,237. So it went over a little over budget. Um, and the reception to this film, uh, it was, it was one of the biggest earners of the year. It occurred, accrued over $1,950,000 in domestic rentals. So it did make its money back, but like not by much. The response to this film, I think we've been kinder to some of this over time. But like one thing that I find funny is Bosley Crowther, my arch nemesis, likes this movie. So maybe that makes sense. Uh, maybe he wouldn't have liked the the remake of the thing. He said, taking a fantastic notion, Mr. Hawks has developed a movie that is generous with chills and thrills. Adults and children can have a lot of old fashioned movie fun at the thing. But parents should understand their children and think twice before letting them see this film if their emotions are not properly conditioned. <laughs> I mean, wow. yeah, totally. Under, I mean, now children. That's a big thing. Now, you have to understand your children. Nobody can do that. Yeah. Oh, Bosley, you're expecting too much out of the people of this world. Just, 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 <laughs> I'll tell you what, just get rid of South Park. It won't matter if the children, the, the, the children can't see it if it's not there. I don't have to be responsible. Oh, they have boy. to be responsible. Um, uh, an author named Gene in Variety, though, complained that the film lacks genuine entertainment values. So, um, I, uh, all the way through. Yeah. But I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, consistency. So you're clarifying yeah, it. Gene yeah, did yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. and, uh, 20 years after its release, um, science fiction editor, Lester Del Rey compared the film unfavorably to the source material saying it's just another monster epic, totally lacking in the force intention of the original story, which yes, that's true, but yeah, it, You're not wrong. it does manage to create its own form of terror with the idea yeah. of the rubber-suited monster. Yeah. This isn't a universal monster movie, and I know we've been talking a lot about the month, this month on the show, ladies and gentlemen, but there's a world where this is th- this conceivably spawns a bunch of cheap universal sequels in the process. Yeah. Like, you know, you're like the thing will be back. Like we, you killed it with electricity, but he got up somehow cause magic. And then yeah. <laughs> you come I mean, there's this, another one yeah. without pissed this, off because you killed its wife. Oh, oh. without this iteration <laughs> of this movie, we wouldn't have the 82 one. Right. With yeah. 82, yeah. 82. And then that's like one of my favorite, like 80s sci-fis and like one of the ones that i remember seeing with my dad like i remember like being younger and watching that movie with my dad and the first time i saw it scared the crap out of me and then like two years later he's like do you watch that movie in again and i was like i don't know and we did and i love that movie it's so good it's my favorite horror movie of all it's so good it's fantastic it's um it's a film that 
we'll get to the talk of it here in a second. I wanted mm. to bring up one thing though regarding the title. So obviously the novel novella is called Who Goes There. Mm-hmm. But then it's also called The Thing from Another World. <laughs> Originally they were gonna just call this the thing. However, the title change became necessary upon the release of one Phil Harris's novelty song, The Thing. So the title was changed to avoid any incidental association with the song. For people who don't know what this song is, the song is about a person who finds a box on the beach that carries something so horrific that it ruins one person's life whenever he shows it to somebody. Uh, and Phil Harris... Very similar. Yeah. <laughs> Wow! Yeah, no, my my life is ruined after watching this movie. No, no, <laughs> no, it's not. You'll be fine. No, Bill no. Harris. By the way, you're wondering why I'm bringing up this connection, even though it's shoehorned in. Well, he was the band leader on the Jack Benny program, so the Jack Benny show is connected to the thing. Take that. Um, the ad campaign that was sent out to messages to the theaters that said the thing of the photo play has no relation to the subject of the current popular novelty song. <laughs> <laughs> I had to clarify that for people. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. An- another note is that the re-release prints of this film ignored the original edict that the shots of Arness were to be printed down in order to shroud him in darkness. So as a result, shots of Arness are clearly visible. So you get to see the thing, but you lose the intent of visibility that of limited visibility that would create the suspense that is intended. So yeah. It's a catch twenty two. I love seeing the makeup. I love seeing even the hand, you know, moving and whatnot. Which I mean, mm-hmm. well, we'll get it right out of the bat. The the remake does that scene better, where they're yes. dissecting things and they're going yes. like my estimation. So good, you know. I have Wil- Wilford Brimley without a mustache, you know, giving us oh. the exposition we need, <laughs> and then going crazy and go, "You don't understand. That thing wanted to be us." <laughs> Oh God! Uh, I love that. Okay, movie. wait. So we're gonna watch that movie. The three of us are gonna watch. That yes, movie. we are. We need to watch, watch, watch that too. together. We we are going to watch it. I mean, Zoom I date. can't drink anymore, but you two can sit there with a bottle of scotch and wait it out. Hell oh yeah! yeah. Nice, good, good one. Boom, boom. Good one. Ennio Morricone. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Now, obviously, we've alluded to this film has inspired um, remakes and reiterations, but however, the. Uh, uh, there's some notes to make about this. Uh, in 1972, Eugenio Martin and producer Bernard Gordon made Horror Express, which is a Spanish-British co-production that served as a second, even looser adaptation of Co- Campbell's novella. Um, the In 1980, Fantasy Newsletter reported that Wilbur Stark had bought the rights to several old RKO films intending to remake them and suggested that the most significance of these purchases was The Thing from Another World. This led to the more faithful version um but poorly received of its time uh john carpenter's the thing because the john carpenter's the thing was poorly received by critics and audiences um which i've expounded on this in the past if you wonder why i don't like et um one of the reasons is because it killed the thing at the box office so fuck that friendly alien (laughs) oh really i didn't know that Uh, yeah i yeah i i like et just fine but i like the thing way better Um, i didn't know it killed the or killed uh, the thing because et was so popular oh yeah for sure and the thing is a dark apocalyptic vision of of inner man's worst (laughs) It, it oh, was God, never going to so succeed good. when you have Elliot. <laughs> um, now, John Carpenter oh, so had true. already shown his affection for the thing because in my favorite horror film of all time, Halloween, he shows footage of the thing. And yeah. So the first time I ever really saw any portion of the thing from another world uh, was 
from Halloween because they show like they have so the whole like ca- watching it on TV. Mm. Yeah, they yeah. even in the trailer for the Halloween they even have uh, audio sections of it where you hear the holy cats. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and it cuts away to Laurie Strode going like, "Tommy, it's me. Open up, Tommy." And it's not the way it's edited in the actual movie. Yeah. Um. So. We've talked about the thing by John Carpenter a bunch here. It is the superior vision of Campbell's source material. But Um, without this piece of art, this beautifully done, confusing cabbage GE festival of (laughs) lights and heat and color. I still, or not color, I mean lack of color. I enjoyed greatly. (laughs) Oh, you know what? That's that's funny you mentioned that. So uh, back in the 80s, there was a a madman called Ted Turner. Um, he's still alive, but back in oh, the boy. 80s, he was a younger madman, and he was trying to colorize movies. Um, yeah. Turner Home Entertainment did release on VHS a colorized version and was billed as an <gasps> RKO color classic. Oh, Ooh. my God. To quote Orson Welles, take your damn crayons off my movies. <laughs> <laughs> And then actually, and that's the same um, incident that led somebody like George Lucas going like, "Well, you can't just alter these movies. You can't just change history." You can't just do the thing that I just did to like all my movies. Yeah, all my movies. (laughs) Listen, what I'm about to do in five years doesn't matter here. We're trying to preserve Golden Age history, not New Wave history. You see, that's how I get around that. Also, I've got a billion dollars in a mansion. (laughs) Your George Lucas is impeccable. I, I thank you, thank you. Come and watch movies in my basement so that I don't have to <laughs> show them to everybody and have them get mean to me on God, the internet. He sounds, like a, he sounds like a plant that wants to just like, eat people, honestly. Sure. <laughs> Come into my basement. And, yeah. What, what know, happens if you, you get him, survive. if you get him truly mad, he starts screeching like sound effects of a cat. <laughs> <laughs> you slow that down, you get a good monster sound. I'm just imagining in the remake of the thing when they when they have to torch the guy, they have to torch, they have to torch the redhead yep. guy with oh, the beard yeah. right. and he's got the claws out and he goes, I'm just imagining that, but George Lucas in the snow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be amazing. So, yes, John Carpenter's The Thing is an amazing classic. We also have an uh, uh, a prequel that was made uh, in 2011 with Mary Elizabeth Winstead, uh, which I like. would have been good if they... Yeah, well, here's the thing. It's, it's fine as a movie. What they should not have done was the studio forced... Uh, CGI effects all over practicals. Yeah. So they redid all this, all this uh, as special effects and redid it in CGI, which just made it look terrible. So they, they should yeah. have just stuck with the practicals. Yeah, I agree. Now, that's what's funny about that, though, is a lot of the imagery in that remake is actually closer to the thing from another world in certain regard. Yeah. Hmm. Especially the defrosting of the beast itself and stuff like that. So, yeah. There is the this older film is still finding its way into our hearts, and apparently yeah. the Frozen Hell our eyeballs, our eyeballs, um, the Frozen Hell reboot will eventually. It's been said that it's going to incorporate all the things we love about all these iterations, but arguably the thing from another world, it does compel the visions that we get forward. So if you don't have mm. this as your base. You don't get to get as creative as Carpenter does. It's like, well, let's say that's a fine movie, but let's go back to the source material and tell a darker story. Yeah. In an era where he's allowed to do that in the post-New Wave era, he can get a little bit more elaborate with it. So, gentlemen, I want to ask you as we wrap up, what are your final thoughts on The Thing from Another World? Like, How do you see its influence in the films of today? Because I have a few. So I think, obviously, it has some, some influence on the Carpenter version. Um, I think that more so though, it's had an influence on me 
personally. And I think it's had influence on, on the three of us together. Yeah. And I think that when we make our version of this movie, we should really embrace <laughs> the uh, kind of like Ripley esque power. They didn't give the woman in this one oh, and yeah. all of the men. And I'm saying, let's bump up the cast size. Let's get, let's get 30, 40, 50 men. <laughs> that all each have like an introduction and all talk like very robotic. But each time that they die, she comes in and kill like and like, you know, is uh, scares the beast away in like a way with like a household item. She's like, well, we've learned that it's afraid of dusting. And she like comes in and dusts at it. And then she's <laughs> at the very end of the movie. It's the whole oven breakdown thing. And GE's going to be into this because we're going to get Kira Knightley to play this chick. Oh, and yeah. she's going to kick at the end of the movie. She's going to kick the door in and she's going to have one of those uh, GE branded. Uh, what are those? fucking desserts that you burn them oh, creme brulee uh, yeah creme brulee. Have a creme, like a big creme brulee thing that she's modified and she's gonna say dinner's ready and then she's gonna <laughs> blast it <laughs> and then we're rich because ge loves it somewhere yeah. howard hawks is going like you know what you found a way to turn the sexism in on itself i approve <laughs> I like it. and, then, and then you got to make it family friendly and the message is kids you have to eat your vegetables so they don't grow up and Fuck mm-hmm. you. Yep. yep. And, then, and then the and, and, then, and then the thing sings a cover of a Stevie Wonder song. For <laughs> 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 once in my life. <laughs> in all so seriousness, once. though, I did I did enjoy it for the most part. I I laughed at a lot of some of the like cheesy, silly stuff, but it was yeah. it was fun. It was really fun. Some of the stuff was really well done for when it was. So I yeah. had a great time. Yep. And I think that one of the things that I noticed is how it. Um, it, it sets a ground for how brutal a horror film can be, albeit through pulling back a lot. Like we talked about, the greenhouse sequence has a lot of instances of genuine, a, a genuine terror abound in it. The idea of what the thing is doing to them in the greenhouse then gets visualized in something like Wrath of Khan. Yeah. And in, in general, the whole idea of something from beyond the stars being a menace still carries on. Like, Alien. The whole franchise yep. of Alien is based around the idea of the 100%. of the xenomorphs being this terrifying, like "don't give a fuck, we will kill you" race yep. of aliens. That I mean, I think that the and additionally, it gives a basis for somebody like John Carpenter to say, like, "I do love this movie. I love Howard Hawks movies. Howard Hawks is a big influence on him." Mm. He says to himself, like, "Well, what if I can do my version of that?" Up to that point, Carpenter had been basically doing Howard Hawks movies his way. Assault on Precinct 13 is uh, is, is about a siege in a similar way to Rio Bravo. Halloween oh, wow. carries that same theme into the uh-huh. idea of a siege on suburbia. Now mm-hmm. he does it on the siege in a lonely Arctic base, and he completes a cycle. Now, yeah. before we wrap it up, we should give clarification. Who is the director of The Thing from Another World? Yes. Sources are varied on this. Hawk stated in Bogdanovich's book, Who the Devil Made It. Chris Nyby had done awfully good as a, jo- a good job as a cutter on Red River, and he had been a big help to us, so I let him do it. He wanted to be a director, and I had a deal with RKO that would allow me to do that. I was at rehearsals and helped them with overlapping dialogue, but I thought Chris did a great job. Yes, hmm. Christian Nyby was the editor on a lot of films for Howard Hawks prior to this, and he would go on to be a director later on up into the mid-60s. In the LA Times article on uh, on this whole controversy, it was stated that Nyby only received $5,460 of the RKO director's fee, and Hawks kept the rest. 
but Hawks would always deny that he directed the film. Several actors from different camps have different opinions. Toby says Hawks directed it, all except one scene. George Fenneman says Hawks would direct once in a while if he had an idea, but it was Chris's show. Cornthwaite stated Chris always deferred to Hawks, maybe because maybe because he did defer to him, people misinterpreted it. There is an interview from the San Jose Mercury News where Nyby says he consulted with Hawks on every scene and that Hawks would change things to keep spontaneity in the actors. In a 1982 reunion, Nyby stated, Did Hawks direct it? That's one of the most inane and ridiculous questions I've ever heard, and people keep asking. That, is, that it was Hawks' style. Of course it was. This is a man I studied and wanted to be like. You would certainly emulate and copy the master you're sitting under, which I did. Anyway, if you're taking painting lessons from Rembrandt, you don't take the brush out of the master's hand. Hmm. Now, yeah. William Self was one of the actors in this movie, and later he became the president of 20th Century Fox, a studio that no longer exists, by the way. Chris was the director in our eyes, but Howard was the boss in our eyes. Chris would stage each scene how to play it, but then he would go over to Howard and ask him for advice, which the actors did not hear. Even though I was there every day, I don't think any of us can answer the question. Only Chris and Howard can answer the question. This is a controversy that is extended into the in, into movie history down the line with the whole authorship over Poltergeist. Is mm. it Spielberg? Is it Toby Hooper? I think the answer becomes complicated when you have a creative producer and a director at the helm. Anytime yeah. a creative producer is involved in one of these productions, their foot, their their fingerprints are going to be all over it. David O. Selznick was notorious with this, with anything he did, whether it was Gone with the Wind, Notorious, Rebecca. There's always a stamp that a creative producer will have. I think Christian Nyby did direct the movie. I'm also aware that Howard Hawks probably directed the movie, but Howard Hawks wanted to give his longtime collaborator a boost into a new career. <laughs> and with that came lessons on how to do that job. He taught yeah. him what he knew to create something and gave him the full credit, which I think is a testament to Howard Hawks's ability to be a fair and amicable human being and yeah, absolutely. wanting to help people out. He has a lot of problems in his history that we'll go over later on, but he was a hardworking director who understood the value of the people around him. Never, hmm. never really took that completely for granted. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting lessons of the thing is is that authorship, authorship in itself is kind of tricky because if you have a singular vision from a weird racist wacko like Campbell Jr. and it evolves into this own thing, it's that true authorship kind of becomes irrelevant in certain regards because the thing has become several different items for anybody yeah. to ingest based on how they see the material. Definitely. Obviously, the version we prefer is the one that comes from the racist, <laughs> medical, weird, wacko. But it, what can you do? But you know what? Arguably, the people out there in the world, whether to detriment or benefit, don't really remember who goes there. They remember yep. John Carpenter's The Thing yep. and Kurt Russell's beard. And they remember Ooh, baby. that uh, beard. It's, it's a great beard. And oh, they also God. remember the thing from another oh. world because the image of Arness as that monster is indelible and does leave you with something. So, gentlemen, this can this will you have concluded the first annual Ballyboo review, a Ooh. month of Halloween themed titles. Uh, thank you for coming back. I want you guys to tell everybody about the wonderful world of the Poptimistic landscape. Oh, Brent. You're so much better as a salesman. 
Hey everyone, <laughs> welcome to Zach's show, not our show. <laughs> Optimistic is our uh, pop culture podcast. Uh, we talk about all kinds of things that bring us joy, movies, music, Dungeons and Dragons, things that bore your Matrix friends and probably talk. you. <laughs> Ma- yeah, Matrix. Uh, the episode we recorded last night, we talked about all the things we have coming up. Uh, we got a lot of really exciting stuff coming. We have more announcements coming on the way. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at pop underscore to mystic yep yeah yep, yep. you can find us at instagram with the same you remembered thing. it I, Hooray! My, <laughs> our email is the one that throws me off so we're, i'm just not going to mention that one but you can find us at instagram as well um we've got a giveaway coming up oh wait no this is not coming out yet so never mind everyone forget yeah. that uh, uh if you like- lots of exciting things if you like this show and you like talking about movies and yep. things about uh nerd culture or pop culture in general that you enjoy Mm-hmm. find us listen to us we talk about it all video games specifically if you want to get bite-sized nugget highlights mm. uh check out our instagram Tick-tick. because we have a lot of um yep. our like little highlights that are like 30 to 60 seconds long to see if you like our stuff and then you can check out the full-length podcast anywhere podcasts are now to uh just a disclaimer uh you might like some of our clips and then not like the full episode guys just so you know oh. guys just so you know don't listen to them. I'm a I'm a regular listener of this show. Stop. No, I love, you're too nice. I love, you're, you're too nice. I you're love, biased. Yeah, you know what? Just like the Ark of Noah. <laughs> they created an Ark of Podcasting. Oh, my God. Um, they now, only accepted two of each kind. Yeah, two the, crime podcasts. Now two I will, pop culture. I will go ahead and give your email a plug. Poptimisticpod oh. at gmail.com is where you can go nice. over there to interact with the lovely Anthony and Please. the lovely Brent. Listen to Poptimistic. It will brighten your damn day amidst the fucking gloom of the world of <laughs> anti-vaxxers and fucking yep. misogynist yep. idiots. You can hear some actual cheerful good news courtesy of Mr. Anthony and Mr. Brent. Thank you very yeah. much, gentlemen. I appreciate your time with us. That's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find Woo. out more about us on the back end of this uh, uh, show with the tags. On the next episode, we've teased it. We've we've talked about it. It's finally here. Five hours of Marx Brothers chatter with Tyler Maybe <laughs> and Andrew Sanders of Pop Culture Brews. You we wow. now and now. I will give you guys some heads up though. Andrew was a little under the weather, so he delivered his um uh it delivered his talk and rhetoric in a very different way. So you'll just have to bear with him. But Tyler and I do carry the conversation pretty nicely. So just uh wow. hang tight with it. And then also coming up, we've got a talk on LGBTQ thematics within Golden Age Hollywood uh, with J. Allen uh, Rickard of Dear Rowan. He will be coming on to talk about the Rebel Without a Cause and the Children's Hour. We did a little cool. double bill talking about how homosexuality is discussed within the confines of Golden Age Hollywood. And additionally, Tony Gross will be returning to cover an episode of Suspense uh, from uh, featuring Bella Lugosi. So we're bringing Bella back because we can't help Bella but bring Lugosi. Bella back. Um, but until all of this, until next time, folks, good night. And remember... If you're wondering what that shooting streak in the sky was that might give you a little shiver or a creep down your spine as to wondering whether or not it'll emerge and consume us all, just sit back in your bed, pull up the covers, and remember, there are such things. Good night. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies. 
everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the sky. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Yeah.